with us. This is Richard Sachs, your host on Lost Arts Radio. We're broadcasting worldwide on this show for June 19th, 2016. And uh, stepping into new territory here. And um, this is going to be a really interesting show. I've, I've been wanting to uh, talk to Bill Warner, Dr. Bill Warner, since we saw him on Alex Jones's show. And you're probably aware that a lot of our a lot of our really great guests have also uh, appeared on Alex Jones's show, and he has some great people on there. And Dr. Warner is no exception. Um, he's an expert on Islam, and so you know, as most people understand that Islam is a a belief system. So why in the world would that be on a health show? And that's a really good question, and you know. Originally, as I've told you many times, I had no intention to really do this show until we were asked to do it, and it probably wouldn't have even been possible except for the fact that uh, Doug Diamond was willing to help put it together, do all the technical stuff, and, you know, basically the whole infrastructure of the show, and uh, that's Doug from DiamondDiscAudio.com, and so it, it just... When I got asked to do it initially, it looked like it was meant to occur. So I said, okay, and right away, just all this energy came in and it just started falling together. All these great guests wanted to be on before we even had any listeners. It was really strange. I mean, not logical, but it it looked to me like it was supposed to happen. So as it developed over the course of, you know, the first few months when we were just getting oriented to what we were doing, I realized quickly that if we were going to cover just topics related to health, then we would be covering virtually everything in our lives. Because I couldn't think of anything that didn't impact our health. And I kind of doubt that you can either. I mean, if it's really happening in the world, or even if it's happening in your, in your thoughts, we've made it you know, really clear with a lot of great guests and with my own work that, that thoughts and emotions instantly impact your health and so do belief systems because belief systems come with emotional uh, counterpart and energy counterpart they usually come with calls to action of different kinds constructive or otherwise and um, so anyway um, normally we wouldn't be covering belief systems too much I mean except when they get brought up by something else but But what's going on in the world right now as the power structure that we often discuss, and again, I I keep interrupting myself because there's so much I want to tell you at once, and these things that are going on like chemtrails and GMOs and nuclear power and all, uh, technology based on harmful EMF radiation and things like that, which are none of which are coincidental, they're all intentional from what I've been able to find out. And none of them by themselves are a full picture of what's going on. They're all reflections of what a malevolent top level of the power structure intends to do to not only humanity, but the whole biosphere. And they're well into doing it, as you can easily see. And if we weren't, you know, so dumbed down by our fake education and twisted stuff that we're getting on the media and fake news and fake science and all this other stuff, we would see instantly if we still had our common sense intact and we can get it back that these attacks are designed to destroy us. It's not 
are really complicated. I mean, the the uh, details of it are complex because it's very um, carefully coordinated and planned out by the people who are behind this stuff. The same people, in my opinion, behind the chemtrails is behind all the rest of it. GMOs and the nuclear power, which they know is world suicide. I mean, these are not like scientific oversights. No, we're supposed to probably think that just like we're supposed to be thinking that, oh, government couldn't be bad because the Congress is so disorganized and incompetent they can't even figure out how to do anything. No, that's the facade. Behind that layer is another level of control that is very, very focused and, and uh, coordinated, patient, They've been working for generations and generations on the plan that they're still working on now. And at the moment, they happen to be using a number of things to help with their plans of destruction. And one of the things that they're using, and I think it started really in earnest about the time that uh, the Russians under Putin and their power structure decided to accept Syria the Syrian president Assad's invitation to help them, you know, get rid of ISIS, which was coming in to destroy the country in Syria. And the U.S. government had been pretending for 18 months or so to be fighting ISIS. They hadn't done anything that was real. And the Russians came in after Assad's uh, invitation to please help them survive. And within about a week, they did more than the U.S. did in 18 months because they were really doing it. And about that time, and, and up till then, um, the U.S. and NATO-funded terrorists, and I'm sorry if this sounds weird to some of you, but there's extensive documentation that the U.S. and NATO have been arming, training, uh, funding, and setting up the terrorists to um, become a worldwide terror force, which would then be a perfect excuse for the global, real global power structure to, when they're done with them, just get rid of them and bring in total tyranny in a centralized control system. So this, the basics of it are simple. How it's implemented is extremely subtle, complex, and sophisticated. So about the time that, uh, you know, this regular system of bringing in these terrorists into Syria to overthrow that country in the name of creating world peace, right, just like they did in Libya. Um, the Russians made that difficult by coming in and actually getting rid of, of some of ISIS and their uh, oil tankers and other things they were doing. And about that time, the strategy appears to have changed. And the people that were going to be busy um, overthrowing Assad and, and overrunning Syria were sent into Europe and now into the U.S. And these are people that believe in uh, terror and mass murder and they're kind of like mercenaries but they've got a belief system behind them that says that they have to kill all these people and among the groups that they have to kill are the gay people or the homosexual people that we just saw murdered in mass in um, not only gays but LBGT in general anybody with a non-conventional sexual orientation 
uh, is probably targeted for death by the same people anyway. And they were killed in mass in Orlando. And um, since this terrorist wave of migration has been brought in to destabilize and destroy cultures and societies in Western Europe, and now it's just starting in the U.S., governments of all those countries are supporting it and they are cracking down on anybody that objects, criticizes, or even talks about it. The, you know, the freedom of speech in America, for example, is rapidly vanishing. And we have a little bit of it left, unfortunately. The internet, which I'm sure a lot of the global rulers are really sorry they allowed us access to, but they wanted us all to be on it because... When you go on social media, you give all your information and your picture and everything, and you just basically do half the work of the surveillance agencies for them for free. They weren't setting it up to be nice for you, okay, to be nice to you. They had their own reasons, and that was near the center of it. It's a control system, so they're not entirely against having it in operation. But I'm sure they're sorry that it allows real news to circulate quickly in the world right now. And they can't just keep everybody totally in the dark as they did before. So the Orlando attack, you know, is supposed to uh, make everybody terrified and beg for more government control, more troops on the street, more TSA. Um, you know, the, the general idea of moving closer and closer to tyranny, not because it's imposed on you, but because you beg for it. And this kind of event is calculated to make you want that to, to be brought into to, uh, to force. So, if you notice how the media treated this attack like they do many others, like the one in Paris and other places, Southern California, it's not a terrorist attack. It's an attack of a lone wolf, crazy, um, they always say it's a gunman. It's not a murderer. It's a gunman, a gunman, a gunman, a gunman. So, in other words, subconsciously you're being trained. Guns are terrible. Guns are e basically equal to murder. Guns are equal to crime. Guns are evil. Guns are terrifying. You have to get rid of guns. All these things are so interconnected. And so, what they want you to support is disarming of the general population, so you can't have any weapons legally. And the terrorists, of course, will still have plenty. They've been supplied by the government itself. So they'll have weapons, don't worry about them. But you won't. And so anybody that wants to defend themselves uh, will be prevented from doing that and the terror will get far, far worse. And you see examples of this in places like Chicago where guns are completely illegal or close to it. And, and also you see it in places like gun-free zones, such as the nightclub that just got attacked. Because if a murderer is looking for people to kill, why go where they can shoot back? Or where somebody might really mess up your plans by killing you? You'd want to go to a place where everybody's completely helpless and just start mowing them down. And that's what happened in Paris. That's what happened here. That's what happened in Southern California. That's what happens in most of these shooting areas, like all the ones in schools. Those are gun-free zones. So they're just set up. Uh, Alex Jones calls them victim disarmament zones, and I think that's more accurate, actually, than just gun-free. They're not gun-free zones, because any criminal can bring a gun in, no problem. It's just that 
nobody who might use one for defense can bring one in. So if, if you kind of start putting the pieces together and you look at how this is all orchestrated, you see that right now terror is a really highly desirable commodity by Western governments. That's why they pay for it. That's why they use your tax money to fund it and to buy them weapons and to ship them, uh, as we've heard recently through other um, inside witnesses, through the drug cartels in Mexico straight over to the Middle East so that they can arm Al-Qaeda and ISIS, which are basically the same thing. And that's what's going on. And so if there happens to be a belief system that is conducive to terrorism, Regardless of what, it doesn't matter what belief system it is, if it condones murder, especially mass murder, and especially things that look like hate crimes that could be then blamed on lone wolf crazy people that are, of course, unpredictable, and you could be one or your neighbor could be one, and there's no way to predict, and therefore everybody has to be tightly controlled, this is perfect. And as David Icke and others have pointed out, it's a problem-reaction-solution um, scenario where the problem is created, in other words, bring in terrorists by, in mass, thousands and thousands or millions of them into all the Western countries and uh, make sure they're armed and they have no resistance from the government and that nobody's allowed to criticize them. Uh, they're given free housing. They're given, you know, the, if they come across the southern border, for example, in the U.S., they've been given bus vouchers to go and settle anywhere in the country they want to with no legal process required, uh, just ignoring their court appointments that they're given as a matter of, uh, you know, just outer show. And then you have a situation like is developing in America now um, where terror cells are being protected by the government. And I'm sorry, but that's what's happening if you want you know, witnesses showing that firsthand on camera and explaining it, people from inside, as I've been asking you before, watch Alex Jones's presentations every day, uh, prisonplanet.tv, educate yourself. <clears throat> There's lots of people that say Alex is terrible. I can't see any reason that that has any truth whatsoever to it. I think he's doing an incredible job. And, uh, Education that is not available elsewhere, and we're trying to add a little bit that he doesn't offer. And, you know, fill in what you missed when you went to the government indoctrination camps known as public education. So, in any case, the more terrorism, the better from their point of view, because they can use that as a perfect justification to crack down and remove the remaining liberties that you might still have pieces of. America's got an advantage because there's still some memory of freedom in this country, but in most places there isn't even that. And so this is why any groups that like to have violence, the, the people that have been protesting Trump lately and been turning over police cars and beating people up for, for freedom and unity, right? And uh, because Trump is so bad, they want to beat up all these people and prove it. Um, these people government supports maybe not in speeches, but definitely in action, preventing the police from stopping them. Um, the communists are, are really getting active in the U.S. now, and they're violent. They want people killed who don't agree with them. They are going towards uh, the communist utopia, which, of course, 
never happens, but they all believe it's because it has never been done right before. And these guys are willing to uh, to kill mass numbers of people to get to their utopia of world peace and happiness. And any group that's like that is perfect for what government wants to accomplish right now. So this kind of um, mass crime is a health issue. And, you know, you can let me know if you agree with that. It seems like if you're going to get beat up, tortured, or killed, or have your head cut off or something like that, it's probably going to impact your health. Unless you know special system that I'm not aware of yet. And so that's why we're looking at it here. And, and especially looking at right now when the free speech is being cracked down on in the U.S. in a really serious way. Um, as people have pointed out, it, it's, be, it's close to where you can't say boy or girl, mother or father, because you might uh, hurt the feelings of somebody who's, who identifies as a, a different uh, sexual orientation. And you, you can't, um, I mean, there's just all kinds of things you can't say. You can't have a, a rally for Donald Trump because he's questioning all of the conventional things. And at universities, they've actually got people so revved up and insane that uh, some of them saw Trump, 2016 put in chalk on a sidewalk and they had nervous breakdowns they actually fell on the ground hyperventilating and passing out because this was so terrifying so you know the what used to be called common sense and being normal <laughs> in other words not being like everybody else being whoever you are but respecting the right of everybody else to do anything they want as long as they don't hurt anybody else this is disappearing in America, and it's farther disappeared in Europe, in what used to be Europe, I should say, is now the EU, with its own non-elected dictatorship controlling it. And in some countries, where the um, waves of invaders have been, you know, more active and more effective, and and gotten more of a head start, those countries are just about gone. And I know Stefan Molyneux is another really interesting commentator that I'd highly recommend to anybody who wants a, another uh, great perspective on news. He's a Canadian, and he was saying that um, basically Sweden is gone now. You know, there, waves of these invaders have been brought in with the government permission and the government protection and the Swedish government saying, don't be mean to these people. And one thing they've been doing is just raping thousands and thousands of women. And these are all Muslim invaders. And you're not supposed to say that because that's prejudiced and, and racist, even though Islam's not a race. There's, there's a lot wrong with the picture, okay? And so the reason that I decided to have a, a show dealing with Islam even though you're not supposed to talk about it, and you're supposed to think that all these killers like in Orlando are just, you know, crazy individuals that had no reason for anything they did, except maybe they need more drugs to be stable or something. Um, I thought we should respond to that kind of crackdown on freedom of communication with publicly talking about things openly. And anybody that's afraid to do that or thinks that you shouldn't do that is working towards a society that we're not going to like, where everybody basically lives in, in a prison of belief, and you can only think certain things that are acceptable to whoever's in power, 
And there's really not that much difference between a theocracy, which is the, the ruling power being a religion, or a, um, a secular government like what we supposedly have in the U.S. if it tells you what you have to believe and what you have to think and what you have to say and more importantly what you can't say and what you can and cannot do. It's called tyranny. And it really doesn't matter what style it is. It can be communist or it can be fascist or it can be democracy if the democracy votes. You know, the majority of the people vote that all your rights are taken away, then the minority has no rights. That's why the, the founders of America said this would never be a democracy as long as the people could maintain the real form of government that we had, which was a constitutional republic. And I'm assuming that all you guys know the difference. And it's a huge difference. And you're not supposed to understand American history anymore. You're not supposed to understand why the founders were were brilliant in what they set up. It doesn't mean, you know, they were perfect or they didn't have all these human issues and problems they were working through and obviously learning their lessons. But what they put in place that was so valuable was the idea of a country where you are free not taken care of, not controlled, but your freedom is protected. They did not set up anarchy. And it wasn't because they were stupid. Because if you set up a system of anarchy where there's no government, the malevolent people who want to hurt or kill you are not just going to evaporate because there's anarchy. They're going to cooperate, which is the normal tendency into the most powerful groups they can. They won't be called government because it's anarchy. And then they'll enslave and kill you. And that has happened all throughout history. It does not have to be a government that does that. The problem is not government, despite my appreciation for Reagan's statement that government is the problem. Government is not really the ultimate problem. It's the malevolent people that gravitate to the positions of power that government offers. If those were full of people with ethics and truly moral people, not following one particular belief system, but believing in freedom, respect, and that everybody could live however they want as long as they allow everyone else to do that, then that government would be superb. And that's the kind that the founders were trying to get started for the U.S. and America. So that brings us back to why we look at a belief system. It's because any belief system that becomes the tyranny will be the end of any quality of your life and possibly of your physical life as well. And so the invaders that are being brought with government help into the Western European countries and now into the U.S., and it's being predicted by the people who know that Orlando is just the very, very minor start of this wave. And the power structure wants to avoid you realizing what's happening as long as possible. And that's why they're talking about lone wolves. I heard Hillary Clinton saying on television, excuse me, after Orlando, that yes, yeah, she's really going to respond and be responsible, you know, after Orlando by cracking down on lone wolves. What do you think that means? You, if you have any of your own ideas, 
are a lone wolf. And if you want to say or talk about, uh, you know, talk about or, or do or promote anything that the government is not saying is within your range of acceptable behaviors, then you're a lone wolf potential troublemaker. And just like in Soviet Russia, you can be declared mentally ill, lose all your rights with no due process, and be sent to a labor camp, which we already have the, um, the camps established in the U.S. They're just not populated yet. But apparently they do have guards and staffs, and that was being advertised for several years ago in the military journals um, that they wanted what they called relocation and internment specialists to be the staff at these camps where you can be taken if you don't have the acceptable beliefs. So we're right on a turning point right now. So are the previous European countries that are now under the EU control. Are they going to let the rest of freedom disappear? And we're right on the verge of that. So the reason I thought we'd get an expert in Islam on the program is because anybody that takes away your freedom is a health issue. Okay, no matter what belief system it is. If you're forced to have the best beliefs in the world and you have no choice, that's tyranny. Doesn't matter how true the beliefs are. The whole point in this country was freedom, not just of religion, but of thought, of speech, of action, as long as you don't hurt other people. It's really simple. So, anyway, um, the waves of, um, of attacks from these so-called immigrants that Obama said, I watched him say this, are widows and orphans, and that these foolish, uh, I guess he was saying Republicans, but actually the Republicans and Democrats are both in on the crime 100%. And he was saying the people, there were a lot of drug dealers coming across the Mexican border, which the Border Patrol was ordered to not just allow in, they were ordered to give them bus vouchers, and they're still doing it, to go anywhere in the country and get on welfare right away to do whatever they need to do. And uh, Obama was saying, this is just silly to worry about this. It's all these crazy Republicans. And uh, actually, it's widows and orphans, and don't we have any compassion? You know, it gets really serious when you've got deception like that coming from the highest levels inside your government. And now the universities are being made into uh, centers of this kind of intentional insanity as well. Um, and what is being called loosely migration is being used as a weapon of social destruction. So... <sighs> As far as getting Dr. Warner on the program, um, I really wanted to do that once the Orlando thing happened because um, we watched the media's description of this as a lone wolf, insane killer. And now I've, lately they've gone into problems he had in his childhood and they're making it about everything but his belief system. But it came out that his father said, you should kill the gays. Why? Because it says so in the Quran. That's it. Not because it was his personal philosophy. He, was, he felt like it was an order from his belief system. And this man said so too. He was definitely in line with ISIS, but 
ISIS is following certain things that are in the Islamic belief system, and most of us, if we're not Muslim, don't have a really clear grasp on it. So, I wanted to get this discussion out in the open, and this is totally not anything to do with criticizing people who are Muslim. I wa- I'm hoping that you guys really understand this, because I have good friends that are Muslim. They're human beings, we're human beings. All these belief systems and labels that you get identified with can separate you and feel like you're different types of people. That's not really true underneath. I mean, the mental programming is different. And the beliefs, I mean, the uh, actions and the behaviors that that causes are different. But anybody can be programmed with anything. Okay, so if you see somebody committing murder or a terrible crime, you need to, you know, if you have an opportunity to stop the crime, you have to do that. It's your responsibility. But it doesn't mean that you have to hate the person who's involved because if it wasn't for good fortune, as Joan Baez sang a long time ago, that could be you. And it's a lot worse to find yourself carrying out acts that you find are criminal than it is being the victim. Because once you get to that depth, sunk into any kind of a mental program or a belief that makes you into uh, you know, a perpetrator of terrible crimes, you're setting some things up for yourself in the future that are not pleasant. And um, it doesn't depend on what you believe religiously. It's a, it's a law of nature that we've talked about many times. And it can't be escaped, at least not in the normal ways that people think of. And that says whatever you do towards another person or, or another being, even animals, whatever you do to another conscious being is going to come back to you multiplied. And it's not an official belief system. It's a deep law of nature. It's a design principle that all the great spiritual teachers have tried to explain so that we can minimize the problems we set up for ourselves. So, I'm suggesting not to hate anybody at all. Everybody is truly family members on this planet. No exceptions. But some of us have gotten pretty, you know, confused, misguided, started doing things to hurt and kill other people. It's like if you have a a brother or sister that gets mentally ill and starts, you know, robbing and stealing and eventually killing, they're still your brother or sister. And if they can be cured it's better than to just have them sent away to prison or executed. And so my preference with everybody is to have people come back to sanity, not to, uh, not, I, I have no, no enjoyment in thinking of punishment for anyone. So I wanted to have a discussion of this, and I asked some Muslim friends and fairly well-known Muslim people to come on and do this, and none of them would do it. I did not ask the people who are advocating terrorism. I asked really great people who are Muslim to come on and talk about it. Without exception, every one of them was terrified, and they would not come on. And that made me more interested. What's going on here? Uh, There was a lady that I talked to who was... uh, publicly trying to 
collect money and other things to stop honor killings in Pakistan and presenting it as a cultural issue. And I talked to her, got a hold of her on the phone, and I said, wait a minute, isn't this a religious issue? Aren't they told to kill and, and uh, damage their family members to save the honor of the family? That was the last she would talk to me. It's too scary. And I totally understand that because if your own belief system is going to punish or kill you, it tends to make you not talk very much. And I totally understand that. We don't know. We might have the same reaction if it were us. So I thought, let's start with education. I found uh, an Islamic expert. Uh, he's not Islamic himself, but he's an expert in Islam. He's written, written about 12 books on the subject. His name is Dr. Bill Warner. I thought maybe I would read you just a little bit of his bio, not too much because I know I'm way over time right now already and we got to get to talking to Dr. Warner. But uh, he's been a physicist, a businessman, a professor. He's director of Center for the Study of Political Islam. First person to use scientific method to produce the first Quran that can be read and easily understood by, by uh, people outside of, of Islam. He, and actually, on the inside, too, I would think this would be really educational for anybody. He also made the other two sacred texts of Islam, which are the Sirah, which is Muhammad's biography, and the Hadith, which is his traditions or, or detailed teachings, similar to read and understand as well. And he's written a dozen books on Islam. He developed the first self-study course on Islam. Um, Foundation of Islam and three-level training self-study course on political Islam that explains Islamic political doctrine. He's a renowned national and international speaker on the topics of Islamic doctrine and history. This is just totally incredible that we're able to get him here. His site is politicalislam.com. And so, uh, before I use up any more of our time, let's go talk to Dr. Warner. I've got some important stuff to tell you when we're done. Hey everybody, this is Richard Sachs, broadcasting worldwide for Lost Arts Radio, and we're here with Dr. Bill Warner, uh, physicist, businessman, and professor is the director of the Center for the Study of Political Islam, and I got really interested in, in talking more with Dr. Warner, um, especially when I heard him on Alex Jones's show for a short time, and I thought it'd be nice if we had time to go into more depth and detail in what he was saying because he's the one who coined this term political Islam and, and Islam is definitely a, a really important um, not only current events related topic right now but as you know this is a health show and what happens to society is a major health factor and we've got this worldwide uh, phenomenon of uh, immigration that is just suddenly coming in from Middle Eastern countries, bringing in people that a certain percentage of them carry out some very interesting activities that en end up in uh, murders and rapes and all kinds of crimes that the um, leaders of the Western countries are somehow all coordinated to excuse and, and cover up and silence and redirect the attention. And I thought, rather than doing that, and remaining unconscious as they apparently want us to stay, we should become more and more educated so at least we know clearly what's going on, why, what are the connections to understanding it, and then that puts us in a better uh, position to look for positive solutions. So 
Welcome, Dr. Warner. I'm really grateful that you're spending some time with us. Thank you. Well, I'm always happy to talk to someone who wants to learn. Yeah, I'm voracious for learning, and I know a lot of our audiences as well. And, uh, you know, before we really finalized the setup for this program, I had thought with so much in the news that's related to Islam and the fact that most people really don't understand where these um, outer actions are coming from, I thought, let's just get some Muslim leaders on the program to talk about how, you know, they really want to be peaceful and all this stuff is an aberration and, you know, just, just happening because these people are mentally unbalanced or something in the actual mass group, you know, the billion point three or whatever number of adherents to Islam there are in the world right now are very peacefully oriented and would like to change this into another direction. And without exception, every prominent Muslim person that I went to, and I'm sure I missed most of them, but the ones that I went to, they were all too afraid to come on the show. And it, it became clear that they weren't afraid of non-Muslims attacking Muslims. They were afraid of retribution from within their own organizations uh, if they dared to talk about what's actually going on and where it comes from. So um, I figured the next best thing is maybe have somebody who's not a Muslim themselves but has done so much study and has a lot of insight on it that we could pursue our education that way. And so I'm really grateful that you agreed to do that. Well, actually, our two instructors today are going to be Muhammad and Allah. Uh, okay, I think they both have great qualifications. And, and, I, <laughs> and It's interesting because if a Muslim says something that agrees with Muhammad and Allah, he's right. If a Muslim says something that disagrees with Muhammad and Allah, he's wrong. So basically, we can skip the Muslim and go directly to Muhammad and Allah. Okay, excellent. Good point. It's a very efficient way to pursue it. And I think before we just start, you know, saying a lot of things like that, let, let's kind of put a purpose on it. And I, I think, and you can add to this, but it, it seems to me that the purpose would be understand what Islam is about, what you mean by political Islam, how is that different than a religious uh, approach to the understanding of the whole thing, and then how the basic understanding puts us in a better position to know what's going on in the world and, and what to do to improve it. Well, we can, we can do all those things because what we have is we live in a time in which the knowledge about Islam used to be esoteric. But now then we live in a time in which the knowledge about Islam has been made, if we will, democratic or popular. So anybody can understand Islam now. What, I'm, I don't think I know what you mean when you say it used to be esoteric, but now it's popular. What does that mean? Okay. Before 9-11, if you wanted to study the Hadith, first off, no one would have been able to tell you what it is. And they would have been a bit perplexed as to uh, what to do even once they understood the word. Uh, but what has happened now is, is that the knowledge about Islam, which used to say about the Quran, is now can be found on websites anywhere or in everywhere. So what used to be very special knowledge has become common knowledge now. Now, common in the sense of there are many experts, whereas there used to be only a few. Let me illustrate this further. Everyone, I'll bet that you know someone who's in a professional in terms of being a CPA, a lawyer, an attorney, or a surgeon. Every, I mean, everyone knows such a skilled sure. person. Sure, sure. But how many people know someone who's an expert on Islam? 
Um, I didn't. I didn't until yesterday, actually. Okay. <laughs> so this, but this, but this now is becoming more common. Yeah. People do understand Islam. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. It's easier to get the knowledge now. And yeah. I, and I have to say, you know, just so people know where I'm coming from, um, I, I know very little about it, but I have read the Quran because I felt like that was a place to start. And um, my interest is in us ha- coming back to a sane world where we don't all kill each other and destroy the world. Uh, you know, I, I want to see the quality of life that really could exist here happen in real life. Me too. So that's what education's for, it seems to me. Yes. Uh, you know, you, you say you're normally about health, but one of the keys to good health is good knowledge. Yeah. And in the same way, if we have a problem, in this case, I argue it's a political problem, not a religious problem. We need to study the ideology of, of the pol- political system. Okay. So, so ha- let's try to understand what you mean by looking at it politically versus religiously. Okay. This, uh, I've studied religion all of my life. Uh, I was raised a Christian. When I was 16 years old, I was beginning to teach adult Bible class. I've studied Torah at the Orthodox Synagogue. Mm -hmm. I've studied Buddhism with Buddhist teachers. I've studied Hinduism with Hindu teachers. So all of my life, I've studied religion. And when I started my study of Islam, which was prompted by having many Muslim students in the university, something sort of leapt off the page at me, which was, most of what I'm reading is not about how to be a Muslim, but is what to do to the kafir, the unbeliever, the infidel. Mm-hmm. So, to give you an evidence of this, uh, 64% of the Quran concerns itself with the kafir. And by the way, I use that word because that is the original Arabic word. And okay. I maintain that it really can't be translated because it's defined in the Quran itself. Is that kind of tra- tra- that's kind of transliterated into an English sound? No, or is that, or is that is the original Arabic word. Okay, okay. Inf- it's usually translated as infidel, non-believer, non-Muslim. Right. right. But it's, it is uniquely defined within the Quran, and it, it has, it's loaded with so many attributes that it doesn't really translate it to any English word, so I just use the original Arabic word. Okay. But anyway, most uh, 64% of the Quran is about me and you. Not about how to be a Muslim, but what to do to the Kafir and what a bad person they are. Mm, okay. And then when you look at the overall text of Islam, and there are three of them, Quran, Surah, Hadith, you find that primarily, and we'll, we'll go back and talk about those, but most of the Islamic doctrine, over half of it, is about the non-believer. Okay. So since the non-believer is not involved in religion, I coined the term political Islam so that we could talk about the doctrine of Islam that deals with the unbeliever. Okay. Let me give you an example between the difference between religious Islam and political Islam. In Europe, it's quite common, and it's begun to happen here in the United States, that on Friday, Muslims commandeer the street to pray in the streets. And you say, well, that's their right, that's their religion. But observe carefully. The prayer is religious. Commandeering the street is political. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Follow me here? Uh, absolutely, yeah. So we need to distinguish what is religious and what is political. I have no interest in the political aspects of Islam. Muslims pray five times a day facing Mecca. 
You mean that you mean you have no interest in the religious part, not the political part? Religious part, yes. Yeah, okay. They pray five times a day facing Mecca. I don't care if they do it or don't do it. I mean, it's simply, I just, it's nothing to me. It's like what color tie you wear. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, political Islam is very important because it includes jihad. And there's several forms of jihad, but it includes all of them. So I'm interested in the part of Islam that impacts me. So you could say I have a very egocentric view of Islam, but it is not a religious view. Okay, okay. Yeah, it, it kind of goes together with the basic principle that America was idealistically founded on, which is that you can believe and speak and think and act any way that you want whatsoever, as long as it doesn't take away the rights of other people to do what they want to do. In other words, we can do anything we want as long as it doesn't harm others. Right. So, and it's on that basis that we have freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of religion, which, by the way, I love them all. Yeah. Yeah, very important. So, so the political part is when it gets into taking away the rights of others. Would you say that's accurate? Well, or if, even if it's not taking away the rights, even interfering with even interfering with the rights or any impact at all on the non-believer if a buddhist is doing something this afternoon at a meditation center it doesn't affect me one way or the other mm-hmm. but if a muslim complains about what i'm saying and says that i shouldn't be allowed to say that and therefore it should be taken down off of facebook that gets into my life right and interferes okay. with my freedom of speech right okay so um you figure the important focus for us right now is to really try to understand what is included in political Islam and where it comes from. For example, which of the three sources that you quoted uh, as authoritative sources of Islam, or you know, where is it originating? Okay. And by the way, we're now touching on the most important thing we're going to discuss today, which is it is possible to know Islam. It's important implicitly assumed in the media that no one can know Islam except a Muslim. That is, it's just simply not possible for us to grasp it. It's something like quantum mechanics or, uh, I don't know, ancient Arabic or something that we can't know. But this is absolutely not true. We can know completely anything that a Muslim can learn, can understand about Islam, I can understand. And this has all been made clear. But first let me explain to you why there's three books that are important and why the reading of them should include the Quran as the last book you read. Okay. If you read the Quran, and you already know about Islam, say the five pillars, Mm -hmm. when you get through the Quran, you'll go, you know, that's interesting. There's nothing in here that allows a Muslim to practice any of his religion. For instance, the Quran says that you're to be charitable, and there's a poverty tax, a poor tax, rather, called the zakat. And, uh, but it doesn't tell you how it's to administrate it, how much it is. Prayer, how it's done, you don't know. Uh, so, but there's a clue in the Quran which lets us fill out all the information we need. There are 91 verses in the Quran which say that a Muslim and all the world is to follow the exact pattern of life that we find in Muhammad. He is the perfect Muslim. So where do we get to Muhammad, the knowledge about him? Well, there's two books written about him. One is called the Sira, S-I-R-A. And it's his biography, and it's a massive biography, 800 pages long in fine print. Then we have his traditions, called the Hadith, H-A-D-I-T-H, and they're little short stories. The shortest one is three words, war is deceit, 
The longest is about a page and a half. And they're typically a paragraph or two where somebody brings a problem to Muhammad and he gives an answer, or it's merely a remark about how he drank a glass of water or knocked on a door. So we have a massive amount of information about Muhammad. As a matter of fact, there's six times as much information about Muhammad as there is about Allah. So now the good news to this is, since the bulk of the doctrine is about Muhammad, he's easy to understand. He, when you read his biography, there's nothing special about it in the, in the sense of difficulty of understanding it. So if you want to study Islam, first you read Muhammad's biography, because that's key to everything. Then you read his traditions. Once you've read those two books, when you go to read the Quran, it's like, well, this is easy now. This all makes total sense. Mm, okay. So the three books, Quran, Sirah, Hadith, completely form what we call the Bible of Islam or the Trilogy. But the Quran itself is not where to go for learning about Islam. You need to go to Muhammad, because it's simple and straightforward. Okay. Now, let me ask you a quick question, then we'll get right back to it. When you talk about Muhammad's biography, I notice you do not use the term autobiography. So, who did it, <laughs> who did it come from, and what is the slant that happens from the person that wrote it? Ah, you ask a very important question. Well, the original writer of his biography was Isak. Uh, that's all we know about his name, Ibn Isak, which... But here's the important thing about it. It was written about 200 years after Muhammad died. Now, this brings up problems. Because it was never written down, it was always an oral tradition. Well, that means that we, we know that oral traditions always diverge a little bit. So we have a book called his biography, and it is incredible detail. Sometimes we even know what color camel he rode. Wow. Well, the, so the details are so fine that you kind of go, you know, how could you possibly have memorized an 800-page book and repeated it from generation to generation such that 10 generations later you can finally, well, we'll write it down. So you can see there's a certain mm -hmm. problem here. But that's only trying to determine, well, what really happened. I don't dwell into that because Muslims assume that what is written is perfectly correct. Okay, okay. And the same is true, by the way, of the Hadith. They're also written nearly two centuries after Muhammad died. Okay. And there's 7,000 Hadith, little, of these little stories. Okay. So the information is there, but how real is it? That is, it, is it what we would call actual history? We have no idea. But we assume that it is as it is, and that Muslims accept it as being true, so we say, okay, the doctrine of Islam is found in the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. So it doesn't really matter which details are technically accurate because they form the basis of, of the actions now. Yes. Whether it's true or not, people believe it's true. Okay. And so therefore, I just it's like dealing with a Christian, or say with a Jew about the Torah. You can argue about whether the Torah is real or not, but what I do is simply assume that it is true and then work up from there. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So, let's, uh, you said you start with the Sirah first, mm -hmm. the biography. Um, you know, unfortunately, we at this point don't have a month to do this part, but you know, I, I want to get some feel for, for what's in there and some things that, that you think are important to pick out, at least initially, to get the interest going. Oh, oh it's, it's a fascinating story. He was an orphan three times. Uh, he uh, became a middle-aged businessman, 
was prosperous. He was a caravan trader. Uh-huh. And then in his early 40s, he reports visions of and sounds of the voice of uh, Gabriel, the archangel Gabriel, uh-huh. who basically informs him that he is now the prophet of God and that he is to instruct humanity in the right way to lead his life. Okay. He preached the religion of Islam for 13 years in Mecca and converted 150 Muslims. He was driven out of Mecca because he was a contentious person. This is all found in the Sirah now. I'm not making any of this up. Okay. They drove him out because they said, you bring in too, ar- too many arguments into the town. So he left Mecca and went to Medina, whereupon he became a politician and a jihadist. When he died, every Arab in Central Arabia was a Muslim. So to recap... He was, a, he was a preacher of Islam, the religion of Islam, for 13 years and got 150 people. But when he turned to politics and jihad, he converted every Arab. Now then, in the last nine years of his life, and he was in Medina for 10 years, in the last nine years of his life, he was involved in 100 acts of jihad. Not 101 and not 99, but 100. That's one a month on the average for the last nine years of his life. So it was jihad and politics whereby Muhammad became successful, not the religion. So that's a brief summary of his life. And, and when you said every, every, every Arab became a Muslim, how many Arabs was that at that time? We don't know. We just know that in Central Arabia, all of them uh, became Muslims. Or that's what the Sirah says. Okay, okay. Okay. All right. Yeah, that is interesting. So, a hundred acts of jihad. What's an act of jihad for the people that don't know? Well, having a man assassinated is an act of jihad. Okay. Uh, there's a very famous. Uh, Muhammad had many people assassinated. By the way, one of the reasons this story is so fascinating is there's spies, counter spies, secret agents, uh, traitors, uh, sex crimes, uh, slavery, ambushes. It is an incredible story. It would make an incredible movie, and unfortunately no mm-hmm. one will make it. Yeah. But it's very interesting. Uh, and at least I found it fascinating. Wow. Because once you understand Muhammad's life, you now understand several things. Remember, he has two periods in his life, a religious life and then a political life. When you read the Quran, one of the things that's puzzling to it is, is that parts of it seem kind of neat and good, and the other parts are like, woo, that's... Mm, I don't like that at all. Mm-hmm. For instance, in, in Mecca, we have, you have your religion and I have mine. That's a quote from the Quran. Okay. And another quote from the Quran is, let there be no compulsion in, reli- in religion. Mm-hmm. Well, those sound fine. Then later, people who don't convert are killed. So you go, wait a minute here, which is this? Well, you need to understand that the Quran reflects what Muhammad needed at the time. So the Quran in Mecca is religious and peaceful. There is no jihad in Mecca. But when you go to Medina, the Quran written in Medina, 24% of it is about jihad. So, is Islam the religion of peace? Yes, it is. Is Islam the political violence of jihad? Yes, it is. But, Bill, those two things contradict each other. That's exactly right. But they define Islam. Islam is based upon contradiction. The Quran even says in three verses how to resolve any action, uh, any, if you, any puzzlement. The latter verse is stronger than the earlier verse. Now notice something here. It doesn't say that the earlier verse is wrong. It just says it's weaker than the later verse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is called a principle of abrogation. 
But it, it's found also in Muhammad's life. That is, he had the contradiction of being a peaceful man and then the contradiction of being a jihadist warrior. Mm-hmm. So which one is the real Muhammad? Well, the answer is yes. They're both equally real. Right. Most Muslims practice the Quran of Mecca. That is, they're not interested in killing anybody or kidnapping or having sex slaves or anything like that. But that is a perfectly form, that's a perfectly good form of Islam. It's just that it's not fully complete. Mm-hmm. But it's true and valid. So this is, because when you start studying Islam, it's like, it's so confusing. We see things like, well, the latest one was uh, uh, in uh, Orlando. But we have to understand there's been more than 20 acts of jihad, 20,000 acts of jihad since 9-11. We have a very biased view of what's going on with Islam. Only when there's a big pop here do we pay any attention. But people die on a daily basis because of jihad around the world. But is that the real Islam? Yes, it is. Is it the real Islam, the peaceful guy down at the fruit market? Yes, it is. So this principle I call dualism. There's always two answers in Islam, and they contradict each other, and they're both true. Okay, okay. So if you're trying to follow Islam with both of those being true, and you're living this peaceful life according to the, the Mecca teachings, then are you... <laughs> what happens to you because you're not honoring the Medina teachings? Doesn't it say that that's uh, something bad on your well, part? Well, nothing has to happen at all. Nothing has to happen at all. You can lead a, a, a quiet life and get on with your life, and that's just the way it is. Now, it's not as good a life as the jihadist, uh-huh. but it is an acceptable life. Okay. In other words, it doesn't lead to a, as strong of a reward to live the peaceful part. Let me give you the reward. Every Muslim, according to the Quran, suffers the punishment of the grave and then suffers the uncertainty of Judgment Day. Now, we need to understand that the Quran says clearly that Allah says, I have made kafirs and jinns. Jinns are another creature that I'm not familiar with. Uh, but this Islam says that there are jinns, invisible creatures. Uh-huh. I have made both men and jinn to burn in hell. So there's an uncertainty on Judgment Day. However, if you're a jihadist, such as the gentleman was in Orlando, you go immediately upon your death to the seventh heaven. Mm-hmm. Okay. You skip the uncertainty of judgment day, and you skip the uns- and the pain of the judge, the pain of the gr- suffering of the grave. Okay, and is the that rewards are better for the jihadist? Yeah, is that pretty thoroughly explained in the Quran, or do you need some of the other mm-hmm. input as well? No, I mean it. It says, uh, I mean it's, it's clearly laid out. Now, let me, let me say, say something about the Quran. One of the reasons it's difficult to read is, is that the, what they did, the Quran that we now know as the Quran was produced about 15 years after Muhammad's death. What happened was the Quran was not written down. It was an oral tradition. But what, two things began to happen. Men who knew the Quran were killed in battle or died a natural death. Mm-hmm. And then some of them disagreed as to what the verse really was. Mm-hmm. So what they said was, well, we need to eliminate this diversity of verses. And so Uthman, one of the caliphs who followed Muhammad, called in every Quran that was written and the bits and pieces of it and put a secretary in charge. His name was Zaid, and he was to produce the new Quran. They then burned 
all of the source material. Now, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Hmm. The source material was all burned. We can dwell on that a while and thinking about why they did that, but it's pretty clear there was variation and they didn't want to expose that. Mm -hmm. The new Quran was put in, not in time sequence, but instead was put in the shortest chapter was at the end and the longest chapter is at the front. Now, the Qurans that I sell have put the verses back in the right chronological order and they've integrated Muhammad's life into it. So that on one page you see Muhammad, what he was saying and doing, and then you also have the Quran. They're in different fonts, so you never confuse the two. Right. Let me give you an example of why this is necessary. There was a day when Muhammad attacked a tribe, and he burned. He couldn't get them out of their fort, and so he, they were date palm farmers, and he chopped down their date palms and burned them. Now, in Arabic law, war law, this was a sin, or a crime, rather. Not a sin, but a crime, because you weren't supposed to destroy crops. Mm-hmm. There's a verse in the Quran which says it was okay to burn the palm trees. Now, if you are reading the Quran, they get at the bookstore, when it comes to that verse about palm trees, your reaction is, palm trees? Who's palm trees? And who, well, what is this all about? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if you know Muhammad's life, then you know that in the week before that, he had, destroy, he had attacked them and cut down the palm trees, and then a few days later comes the verse. In that context, the verse makes sense. It is Muhammad's life that gives the Quran context. It is not possible to understand the Quran until you understand Muhammad's life. Okay, okay. But once the Quran is put, by the way, in the right order, it becomes a vast story. And the story is, he, it begins with a hymn to God and ends with political domination of the world. Okay, okay. So, uh, I think you said that... that uh, Muhammad was only in Medina for 10 years, is that right? That's correct. So, what, is that because he died after that, or did he go yes, somewhere? Yes, he died. At okay. age, I think is I think age 63. I'm not, the year was 632, and I think, I'm not clear about it. I don't remember really how old he was. Okay, okay, okay. So, um, and then there's a whole history of the people that followed him starting at that time. Right, which would be important. Yes, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, because, and let's talk about them. After he died, and by the way, he didn't leave a will, even though the Quran commands every Muslim to leave a will, Muhammad didn't. Okay. He didn't always have to follow all the rules. Right. We had a need about getting a new leader, and the new leader's name was Abu Bakr. Now, when Muhammad died, there were a whole lot of Arabs who said, you know what, we've tried the Islam thing, and we kind of like it, but you know what, we're going to move on here. We'll uh, go back to our tribal gods. Mm-hmm. And Abu Bakr says, not so fast. <laughs> you are a Muslim, and you will remain a Muslim, or I will kill you. And this created a small war called the Apostasy Wars. And after enough Muslims died, or after enough apostates died, the rest of them said, you know, we're good with the Islam thing. We're on board with it. Right. Don't kill us. Right. So this is the first political action of the people who superseded Muhammad, or succeeded Muhammad. So this could be related, I mean, just intuitively looking at it, this could be related to why nobody wanted to come on the radio. (laughs) That was my intent in telling you the story. Okay. Yeah, very interesting. So, right. Apostasy in in Islam is is not a sin, it's a crime. Okay. Capital. Okay. 
Was that crime invented by Abu Bakr or by Muhammad? No, no, no. We have uh, we have others who converted and wanted to leave, and they were also killed. You mean before so Abu Bakr, him, before Abu Bakr? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. Now, by the way, it's important to say the killing of apostates is not clearly called out in the Quran. Once you understand some things, you can see that that's what it's implying. But once again, it, the hadith and the 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 hadith gives us the missing details of the Quran. Okay. Okay, so again, jumping back, I, I think this is relevant since we're, we're saying that the Quran looks like it explains why you have to kill apostates because uh, otherwise Islam wouldn't grow the way it's supposed to. But Actually, one of the Al-Qaeda imams said were if it not for the apostasy laws, Islam would not even exist. Yeah, it's a strong motivation to, to uh, definitely not change course. Um, yes. But then you go, if the Quran is, is the source that explained that and said that you have to be killed if you want to leave and just make whatever choice you want, then I'm going back again wanting to clarify a little bit the origin of the Quran. Muhammad is supposed to have, I, you didn't really clearly say this, but is Muhammad supposed to have picked up the entire text of the Quran himself but kept it oral and then a couple hundred years later is the first time it got written down, but it, it was given to him like some kind of a transmission originally, right? Yes, a revelation is what it's called. Yeah. And the Quran was written down about 15 years after he died. It was his biography that was 200 years. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah, I want to get that right then. So, okay, 15 years after. But, but he, is he the, well, he couldn't have been the one who dictated the written version because he was, had been dead for 15 years. But well, he 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 did it when he was alive. <clears throat> he reported it. And he had people who transcribed his material. Okay. He also had people who memorized it. Okay. So they just didn't put it together into a single book until fifteen years. Exactly. Ago. It was written down. It, it is written down on palm leaves, the the okay. shoulder bones of animals, and in the hearts of men. Okay. 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 All right. And so, since and and he got it prior to the Mecca period, is that right? Uh, during the Mecca period. During That's when it started. All right. Revelation started then. So even though he was just teaching the peaceful version of it at that time, he, since he had gotten the entire Quran already, it must have already included the jihad version as well, right? No, no, no. No? The, here, here's, a, here's a subtle teaching about Islam. It is what's called gradual revelation. And this, by the way, is the way they convert people. They don't tell them everything about Islam. You don't teach them about jihad until they're firmly on board. Okay. That is, you start off with a beautiful, peaceful religion, which is a wonderful thing. You have a community, you have a structure to your life. There's many reasons to become a Muslim. But uh, they never teach you in the beginning about jihad. But there is something very interesting that goes on. After 9-11, many people became Muslims. This killing in Orlando, Florida, will cause people to convert to Islam. You, you, yeah. yeah, you have to explain a little bit about that, because it's a bit counterintuitive for somebody well, just hearing about it. let me give you something from the Sirah that illustrates this. Muhammad said, kill every Jew you can find. And by the way, the 
Quran has two totally different views of Jews. One, they're special chosen people uh, the prophets come from, and the other is they're apes and pigs and kill them where you find them. We have, once again, dualism. Mm -hmm. right? Right. So Muhammad said, kill every Jew you can find. And a man went and killed his business partner, and his brother approached him about it and says, are you crazy? He <laughs> says, that man, your business partner, put the fat on your belly. Why did you kill him? He said, because Muhammad commanded me to. And the brother said, what? If he commanded you to kill me, would you do that? He says, yes, I would. He said, this is a wondrous thing. I must become a Muslim too. <laughs> people, as Osama bin Laden said, people like a strong horse. People like a winner. Okay? Okay. Well, okay. when Islam asserts its strength, there are people who say, I want something strong. Right. I want Islam. You know, it strikes me that, uh, just from my observations in the world, that People like something that eliminates uncertainty as well. Yes. And, yes. and something that really explains everything so you can just stop this irritating thing of not really knowing what's going on in life. You have put your finger directly upon one of the motivations why people become Muslims. There's another reason, by the way, which has to do with our family and sex habits. Okay. If you're a woman who wants a husband, it's kind of hard to find a husband. Now, you can find somebody who will drink some booze with you and have a good time on Saturday night. But to find somebody who's going to move in, father your children, work and do a job and take care of business, kind of. well, if you become Muslim, you can find a husband very easily. And if you, the other thing is, is that there are types of people who don't want a loosey-goosey approach to a life. That is, they don't want, well, you could do this, or you could do that, well, whatever, you know, whatever. A lot of people don't respond well to that. They want to know what to do. Mm -hmm. Islam right. answers the question of what to do with every minute of your life, and it's all laid out in black and white. So you're right. That's something that people find attractive. Okay. And you also, in, in the modern world, we emphasize the individual. In Islam, the emphasis is not on the individual, but on the ummah, the community. Mm -hmm. So when you become a Muslim, you join a, an entire community. If your car fixed, a Muslim mechanic will help you do it. You, you are a member of a, a community, which has very definite boundaries to it. And this is kind of fun, because now then you're not alone. Right, right, right. Yeah, I've, there must be some pretty strong attraction if there's, I mean, aside from the idea that you're killed if you leave, but there are a lot of people joining, like you said, and... To, ha to be up to 1.3 billion right now, there's not too many organizations that can match that. No, they're not. No, they're not. And by the way, bigger every year. It's the fastest growing, quote, religion in the world. I say it's the fastest growing political system in the world. Well, and, but that's partly from just the new kids being born, right? It's, it's, both, it's both conversion and increased birth rates. Okay, so, so is it that, fir that first half that, that is the attraction for conversion, the, the Mecca half? Yes, yes. They don't introduce you to the jihad until you're firmly on board. Okay, okay. Right. It's not usually something they teach you on day one. Right. So I'm getting a little bit more understanding of why people would be attached to the system, you know, we hear about, lately we hear about the part that impacts the rest of society and all the violence and everything, but on the inside of that, if you can just kind of not pay attention to the, the violent part, you've got a complete structure of life that answers all questions, gets rid of 
the concern of any uncertainties of what means what. And you don't have the hurting factors that lead a lot of people into drugs and just trying to become conscious of what's bothering them because everything has been answered. Yes, it is a complete... By the way, we need to... We've, we've talked about Islam as a religion and Islam as a political system, but if someone says, says that Islam is a religion, you're dealing with somebody who doesn't know anything about Islam. Muslims themselves tell you Islam is a complete way of life. Okay. My word for it is it is a complete civilization unto itself. Right. right. Wow. Yeah, this is really opening up a lot better understanding for me. Because a lot of times, modern Westerners especially think of religion as something more superficial because that's how it is for them. Right. But, you know, in other words, they really strongly believe such and such, but they're still pretty much free to do what they want in the rest of their life, and they don't necessarily bring the two together, and they spend all of the compartmentalized religious time apologizing for what they did in the rest of their life. That, that they... <laughs> Doing every every week, right? And it's pretty common. And they figure that it's okay, that's just how it goes. But in what you're describing as the Muslim society, um, there's not that much diversion from the way to live as is taught in Iran and these other places. Mm-hmm. So I, I would understand why, why members of it would feel it's a great system. It's more coherent. More coherent. Than almost any other. By the way, it, it preaches that it wants to win. It doesn't want to tie. It wants to win. It wants to be superior. Right. Well, that's an attractive thing. It's like if you got a football coach and one of them says, "Well, you know, we just play the ball. We don't care whether we win <laughs> or lose." Yeah, but we're and really nice says, people. Oh, we're nice people, and the other one says, "We train winners." You go, you know, I'm going with this guy. Yeah. I like the winning idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an amazing phenomenon to me. I mean, even in elections in the U.S even though the results may be completely fake when they're you know, announced to the public, as soon as they start announcing that so-and-so is winning, people change what they're about to vote for and start voting as winning. Yes. It's called a bandwagon. Yeah. You get on the bandwagon. Yeah. Oh. People like a strong horse. Wow. So, um, I want to intersperse a little bit from the hot ETH into this, too, because really said very much about it. Uh, we said it's traditions, but and it's mm-hmm. it's stories. It's the, is there a theme, or are they just scattered from all different areas? Of- so they're, they're, now they they concern everything. There's no subject you can bring up that there's not a hadith about. Now I say that I'm sure that somebody could find some, but you even learned how Muhammad laid on his back. Okay. Okay. And I forget whether the left foot's on top of the right foot or the right foot's on top of the left foot. Wow. Uh, you don't drink when standing. So all, even wow. the bathroom habits and his sex habits are laid out. We know an amazing amount of detail about his habits. Hmm. It's all recorded because everything in his life is an instruction on how to be the perfect person. So as a result, we have him as a father, we have him as a husband, we have him as a leader, we have him as a judge, a businessman. Uh, he was everything, and he is the perfect pattern to do everything. So, like I say, there's several collectors of these hadith, and I only use the most authoritative, which is Bukhari. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, but there's there's 
I mean, the, like I say, even his bathroom habits are described. Well, so it, it really fits into the theme that we're just, our every question is answered for you. Yes. Even, and if there's a hadith about that where a man says when he discovers all this, he says, this is amazing. Everything is included in Islam, including the use of the bathroom. Wow. By the way, it even dictates which foot you enter the bathroom with. Okay. Anytime you wipe your backside. Now, is, is this, are these things that there is a penalty for not following, or are they just suggestions for how to be a perfect person? Touching uh, 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 an important question. These are suggestions. Okay. Now then, let me say something here. Most Muslims know nothing about this. It's really odd. Everybody presumes that a Muslim knows everything about Islam, but I find it's very odd to find a Muslim who does know much about this. There is, in the Sharia, even a verse in the Quran which states, you do not ask difficult questions. Well, <laughs> let me tell you something. As a scientist, the only questions you ask are the difficult questions. The easy ones have already been answered. Right. <laughs> so this is a very strange ruling. So most Muslims... I'm going to make an analogy here to the Catholic Church. Most okay. Catholics do not read the Bible. Instead, they ask the priest what to do. Yeah. Most Muslims do not read the Quran, or if they do, it's in Arabic, a language they don't understand. They go to the imam and they say, what should I do about this, what should I do about that? Okay. So it gives the imam work to do. Okay. And they usually just... Also, the other thing is, Islam as a religion, is largely about externals. They don't really care what's in your heart. They just care that you go to the you do the prayers, you don't, you fast during Ramadan. That is, if you lead an outwardly, that's all that's accounted for. That's all that really matters. Okay. Okay, interesting. Now, you mentioned for the first time, I think, in this discussion, the word Sharia. Um, mm -hmm. How does that fit into the three different sources that you talked about already? It integrates them all. It's a civilizational operations manual. Let's take an example, divorce. So the divorce is mentioned in the Quran, it's mentioned in the Hadith, it's not mentioned in the Sirah, as I recall. So now then, if you want to have an Islamic divorce, you don't want to plow through all the Quran and all the traditions, because there's 7,000 of them. Instead, what you do is, scholars have gone through and they said, okay, on the question of marriage and wills, is an example, or how to bury someone. Here's everything on the subject of burial. Here's everything on the subject of how to make a will. Here's everything on how to be a mother. So the Sharia is the codification of the knowledge that's found in the Sirah, the Hadith, and the Quran. Now, having said that, there's different schools of Sharia because uh, the, the, there's different interpretations as to what this means or that means. So it's kind of like you can have a constitutional argument. Just because we have a constitution doesn't mean that everyone agrees on how it's to be interpreted. Right. But the Sharia basically interprets what's found in the Quran and the Hadith and the Sirah. As I call it, it's an operations manual. When was it? it when was it? When was it written and by whom? Ah, once again, it was written a couple of centuries after. I think it was even. I'm, I'm vague about this. Don't quote me. All right. Uh, but it's written centuries after Muhammad's death. And there's several schools of Sharia. There's a, there's a Shia schools, and, and then there's the Sunni schools. And the Sunni schools, I think there's either four or six different forms of uh, Sharia. And by the way, as a Muslim, you can choose which school you want your case tried in front of. Mm. Like for being able to pick a judge. Okay, okay. Interesting.
Yeah. Uh, in, after our intermission here that's coming up in about 15 minutes, and maybe we'll go more into this, because people talk about Sharia law in the West, and they have just, in general, really vague ideas about what it actually encompasses and what well, There's it no is. reason to be vague about it. Uh, I sell a book on Sharia law that's sold over 50,000 copies, but if you don't want mine, I'll look up in its Reliance of the Traveler, which can be bought on Amazon, and uh, it's a fascinating book to read. Uh, I mean, there's just things in there that are like boggle your mind. What's it called again? Uh, the, the Reliance of the Traveler. Okay. The Reliance of the Traveler. And it's, it's inexpensive. Now, it's an extensive book. I think it's 1,400 pages long. Mm-hmm. But it's not the kind of book where you read. It's not like it has a plot. To, you can just thumb through it like, oh, here's about, oh, look what it says to say about jihad. Oh, my word, look. Mm-hmm. Or here it is about uh, divorce. Or it's, it's a, one, it has no plot, so you can pick it up and open it, read it anywhere it opens. Okay, for the traveler. So it's, it, and by the way, this is another example of how the knowledge of Islam, which used to be so esoteric, is now available to anybody who's willing to sit down and read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I think is great. And then, you, oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, and I, you know, I should have asked you this in the very beginning of the discussion, but uh, how did you get in, into studying Islam so thoroughly? I mean, how, what led up to that, and why did you just? Well, 45 years ago, when I was a 30-year-old man, boy, I became interested in Sufism, mystical Islam. Right. And so I studied that for about a year, but I began to realize there were some dark corners in it that nobody wanted to talk about, and those dark corners were jihad. Mm. Left it. And then time goes on, and then I became a college professor, and many of my students were Muslim. And to me, there was a subtle veil between us. I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but I'm big on reading source text. That's part of my scientific training, if you will. If you go to the foundational work, then you don't have to deal with all the ancillary work. So I decided to sit down and read the Quran cover to cover. Now, I'd already read it once before, but just bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. So I read it cover to cover. Then I said, whoo. Then I read the biography of Muhammad, and I went, whoo-hoo. So as a result of this, as an example, uh, on 9-11, my phone began to ring with people calling and saying to me, man, you said something was going to happen. How did you know? Well, I read the playbook. I read that Muhammad called his enemies to Islam before he attacked them. And Osama bin Laden issued a tape back in those days. It was VCR tape. And he uh, called America to Islam. And I said, ooh, this is very bad. Because <laughs> we're not going to submit. And so this now means that we're going to get attacked. And so we were. When I saw the second plane in the second tower, I realized that I was one of the few people who understood the difference between a Sikh, a Hindu, and a Buddhist, and a Muslim. And so I decided that what I would do is I would make the doctrine of Islam known to anybody. And I set around to popularize or democratize the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith, which is what I've done, as well as the Sharia. So my interest, my first interest was my personal life. The second interest was to understand Muslims. And the third interest was to educate those around me who need to understand the doctrine of political Islam. Mm-hmm. And this is all that I do now. Okay, yeah, it's become your total focus at this point. It's, 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 you, you, you'll either be amazed or disgusted as to how much time I spend on this. <laughs> and you wrote quite a few books on it at this point as well. Yes, I've got about I don't know, a dozen at least. Yeah, and 
you know, when I first looked at them, which was a couple of days ago on your website, it, they looked so interesting that I, I really feel like I want to read all of them. And at some point, you should uh, you should tell us what order people should read them in. If well, they, what you if, should do is you order. I, I also not only made books, I put together study systems. And one of them, I always say to people, start with the Foundations of Islam. It's four little bitty books, about 70 pages long. But when you get through it, you will understand at a superficial level the entirety of Islam. So uh, these are made... The easiest job I ever had was being a college professor. The dean was irritating, but it was like, you mean this is legal? I walk into a class on calculus, and I just stand there and talk about calculus for an hour, and I'm going to get paid? Mm -hmm. I'm having more fun than anybody in the room. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Love to teach. Yeah, so you're doing that now, but you're doing it primarily on Islam and political Islam, right? That's uh, that's all I write about. I've uh, I had I have uh, I, I'm a woodworker by hobby. Mm-hmm. I put together a fabulous woodworking shop. Then 9/11 came along, and it the tools are just out there. Some of them are getting rusty. Mm-hmm. I'm okay. using the telephone, the word processor, Skype, and other things. Uh, I don't have time for my hobbies anymore. So, do you need to read a few of the books first in order to understand the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hidath, and then after that get into Sharia details, or or how does that order? Oh uh, yeah, you want the Sharia. The, the uh, like I say, I've got a course called the Foundations of Islam. Mm-hmm. Sharia comes afterwards. Although you can also, I mean, I've had I don't know how many people. My book Sharia Law for Non-Muslims has been translated in fifteen languages. Okay. Sold around the world. It's it's Amazon's bestseller on Islamic law. Wow. You can start it for that matter. <clears throat> but if I were going to offer a college course in understanding Islam, mm-hmm. we would start off with Muhammad's life, then go to his traditions, then go to the Quran, and then you go to the Sharia. When you get through with that, you understand the entirety of Islam, not in depth, but in in its entirety. That is, you're not going to discover any new subjects. Mm-hmm. Most people think of Islam as being like an Amazon jungle. You know, it's like, oh, it's so complicated. You can't put your arms around it. Goodness gracious, you could spend a lifetime studying it. Well, you actually can put your arms around it, and you can hold all of its necessary books in one in two hands. Okay. Okay. It's no longer is no longer as mysterious. That's what's so frustrating to scholars who know this when they hear politicians waffle and wobble and about Islam. It's like, no, no, no. It's easy to understand. Yeah, you refuse to just read the basics. Yeah, it takes reading. So uh, some of your books, you know, you mentioned that I think you said the Sirah by itself is a book, but some yes. of your books include it, right? Is that how it works? Well, what happens is when you read my Quran, three of them, they're just different length. Okay. You find that the Sirah laid out all over again, because only with Muhammad's life does the Quran become understandable. There are events in there which, if you don't know, that Muhammad's favorite wife, Aisha, spent one night on a, uh, a, with an, a soldier of his, and that therefore there were charges of illicit sex, there are verses in the Quran which you will never understand. But if you're reading Muhammad's life as a parallel text, it's like, oh, okay, <laughs> that's pretty clear. Right, right. There's even, so, Muhammad is the key to understanding the Quran. You cannot, no one can understand the Quran without Muhammad. No one. It's simply not possible. 
All right, because there's a lot of parts missing, I guess, a lot of information. Not only that, it gives it, you know, you hear, well, it all depends on what the context is. Muhammad is the context of the Quran. Okay. His needs are fulfilled in the Quran. Okay. So if you get the Foundations of Islam book first, that explains how to put together the rest of your whole study program, right? Yes, well, what it is is, is it includes, I reduce my books down to, two forms. I've got page books and 60-page books. Enjoy the little books. They don't want to read a 480-page book that contains the Instead, they prefer to read a little book. People have been convinced that Islam is hard to understand, and the little books seduce you. It's like, mm-hmm. well, I can read. So I have an 80-page version of the Quran called a two-hour Quran. I have a long version of the hadith and a short version. What I do is, and I have an extensive biography of Muhammad and a short biography, I feel what works best for people is to give them the little books first. Okay. Because okay. they feel like I can do this. Then, after you've read the little books, the next level is to start reading bigger books until the final level is you read the originals. Okay, okay, okay. So are, It's all are based you, on self-study. Does your website sell also the versions of the originals when the people get to the yes. point? Oh, no, I don't sell the originals. I tell you what they are. You can get them on Amazon. Okay. But you okay. can get the originals. Okay, so then you just look up the Sirah and the Hadith and you, and you find those on Amazon. Yeah. Af- after going through the other stuff. Yeah, uh-huh. After you've gone through my books, in, in the front of my Quran, it says... Any Muslim will tell you this is not really a Quran. And so let's not argue with them. Let's just say that when you finish this book, you will be able to pick up and read a real Quran and you will understand every verse. Okay, okay, okay. Um, it's like a training program to understand the real thing. Yeah, that's really good. And, and then you mentioned the two uh, schools of thought in terms of Sharia, and you said there was a, a Shia version and a Sunni version. Yes. When did, when did those two diverge from each other? Where did they come from? Well, they diverged early on because Ali, Muhammad's uh, uh, son-in-law and cousin, mm-hmm. uh, was there was a civil war after Muhammad died, and uh, the Shia came out of that civil war. Okay. And uh, so they have. Turns out that Aisha, Muhammad's favorite wife, fought Ali. Uh, in a civil war, and so the Shia who come out of Ali, Shia means party of Ali, uh, hate Aisha, and so since most of the Hadith come through Aisha in the Sunni tradition, they say, well, we don't want anything she said, so they have their own versions. Now, let me hearten to say this. When it comes to how they treat the Catholic, the non-Muslim, and Mm -hmm. about jihad, they all agree on that. Okay. It's only on there's religious details that they differ on. They in eschatology, they differ in whether the caliph should be a Muslim, should be a relative of Muhammad or not. These are not the things that concern us. How they treat us is the same. Okay. Now, by the way, there's also a further explanation of the split between Sunni and Shia. The Sunni were all Arabs. The Shia were Persian. The Persians did not look favorably upon the Arab. They considered him crass, crude, and uneducated. So they sort of took, they, had, they, were, they were crushed by Islam, the Arab, but they sort of retaliated with their own form of Islam. That's a cultural explanation. Okay, and, and that form from the Arab side was the Sunni form, right? 
Yes. And Sunni means, it's taken from the term Sunnah, S-U-N-N-A, is the, is the traditions of Muhammad and the life of Muhammad. That is, the Sunnah is his perfect path. The Sunnah is found in the Hadith and the... Okay, and that became Sunni. Sunni meaning pertaining to Sunnah, something like that? Yes, uh-huh. Because what the Sunnis say is, any man can be caliph as long as he follows the Sunnah of Muhammad. Okay. 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 So, have you, in your investigation and study of all have you gone into um, using it to understand what's happening to the different um, governmental structures in the Middle Eastern area? For example, the one that Assad is running right now versus uh, what's happening in Saudi Arabia. Now, that's a slightly different version of Islam called Alawites. Which Assad? The, uh, 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 the man in, uh, oh, my God, his father was, a, he was, was trained as an oral surgeon. He's, uh, oh, why am I not able to come with name? Sorry, I'm having an old no, age brain. No, that's fine. Yeah, I was just wondering about, you know, we hear all these stories, at least I have, from pretty good sources that in Syria for a long time, uh, different religions were allowed to coexist for, you know, thousands yes. of years and things like that. And that's not true everywhere. There are different approaches to the whole system. Well, there are... Here's one of the ironic things about governmental systems. A Sharia law government is far worse for a Christian than a dictator law is. That is, under Saddam Hussein, uh, the Christians were not bothered at all. Once we drove Saddam Hussein out of his hiding hole, which was a big mistake, mm -hmm. but we won't go into that, right. uh, then the new replacement government, which was now based on Sharia, uh, and by the way, in the, in, in the Iraqi constitution, it states that basically all laws must agree with the Sharia. Okay. Uh, they're very cruel to Christians. Right, right, right. Okay, and, and Saudi Arabia, which is a much younger country than uh -huh. Iraq, then that's a pretty severe environment as well, right? It's uh, very harsh. They're the Wahhabi Islam. But by the way, let me say something. If I were going to be a Muslim, I'd be a Wahhabi Muslim. Because they, as it were, drink it straight. They don't flinch. They don't try to mollify or anything. I'm not really following what you mean. The Wahhabis, who are the form of Islam found in Saudi Arabia, yeah. are very... They stick to all the details. Okay. Look, okay. so many parts of Islam are so unpleasant that most people don't practice them. Okay, right, right. Wahhabis yeah. say, no, 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 we're going to practice them. Okay, so why is it that you would choose that one? Because they're the purest form of Islam. If I were going to be a Muslim, I'd want the purest form. Okay. Oh, yeah, way, okay. okay, right. There's, if you were sincerely wanting to do things correctly according to what came originally from Muhammad... You feel yes. like, like the truest form that has been changed is the Wahhabi form. Yes. The Wahhabis, by the way, are a reformation. Of what? Of what? What do you mean? They are, people say we need a reformation. Wahhabism is a reformation. Boko Haram is a reformation. The Taliban is a reformation. And Al-Qaeda is a reformation. That is, they go back to the original source material. Okay, I thought... They reform themselves. Go ahead. 
into what the original material said. People say, well, Islam just needs a reformation, so it'll be nice and sweet and kind like Christianity is. Well, what ref- refor- reforming means is to go back to the foundations. They were so reform- that's what has happened. They were reforming the reformed form back to the original. Yes. Okay. And back to the original is uh, a form that is we find in Wahhabi Islam. Okay, so they're basically a pure and true... Yes. Medina version. Yes, yes, that's it. Okay, okay. What I'd like to do at this point is go back and, and recap a couple of important points because you've, you've given us so much to think about, digest, and uh, learn from, uh, Dr. Warner, at this point. And a couple of my questions that I kind of saved up, um, and to make sure that I've understood what you've said so far, is that we have two periods that are essential in the teaching of Islam. And, and the first one is from when, or generated from when, Muhammad was in Mecca. And this is what you were calling originally more religious, but what I got from it is it's more harmonious and peaceful, and it's very potentially attractive to people who are considering uh, joining Islam, or at least appreciating the heritage that they may have been born into. And then the later part of uh, just a little bit shorter period is in Medina, or generated from the time that Muhammad was there, and that became political. I'm not sure if there's an actual transition between the two, or if it's just a sudden change. And um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the first part, you know, that, that a lot of people don't think about, what is attractive and harmonious and really, you know, very positive in a lot of ways about Islam coming from the Mecca period and maybe say a little bit more what that involves. Well, that's a long question. I know. Sorry about that. I should have made it. That's quite all right. <laughs> the transition period between the two, which I'd never thought about until you asked me the question, okay. it took a year. All right. It took one year. That is, after he moved to Medina, his first order of business was to get a home and build a mosque, which okay. he did. Okay. And then uh, he entered into... There had been war in Medina between uh, basically a civil war. There were two Arab tribes and five Jewish... I'm sorry, two Arab tribes and three Jewish tribes living in Medina. Mm-hmm. Now, the fight was not between the Arabs and the Jews, but it was between the two Arab tribes. And so Muhammad was brought in uh, ostensibly, and there was precedent for this in Arab culture. He was sort of viewed as a spiritual man, and therefore he was to be brought in as a judge and a leader, as a man from the outside of the community who would bring peace. So his first thing that he did was to draw up a sort of a contract or an agreement on how the people would do business and how things would be referred to him for decisions. So this first phase of the first year was uh, strictly political and sort of setting up housekeeping, building a mosque and that sort of thing. So he was so a mediator was, at that point, right, between the Yes, he was a mediator. Warring factions. That's okay. very interesting. And I never thought about this now. He started off as a, when he was before he became a prophet in in Mecca, he was known as a mediator and a problem solver and a man who could resolve arguments in um, Mecca. So okay. He starts yeah. off in the very beginning of his um, public appearance in, in Mecca, and what he, when he became known, at first he was known as a mediator? No, that was when he was, a, we'll say, a civilian. Okay. When he became okay. a prophet, 
he became now when he first became a prophet he was a little timid he only told his family and others but as he became more and more public he became more contentious and the point of contentiousness that really sort of broke the peace was that the arabs were very much into their ancestors and when he, one of the things he said when he first declared himself to be the prophet of Allah there were already 350 or 360 I believe the number is so-called gods in Allah in Mecca anyway and so this was like 361 they're like okay fine sure mm-hmm. room for one more because they were a polytheist uh, civilization polytheists are inherently tolerant if you think about it so he was like fine okay you're, you're the prophet of Allah and you have these things you want to tell us good 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 just move on in okay then he started telling them that their ancestors were going to burn in hell because they had not followed his way of religion okay well this was highly offensive yeah i'm sorry if i'm if i'm not getting this right but are you are we talking about mecca or medina now yes this is all in mecca okay what i'm doing is i'm making analogies between mecca and medina okay good now then when he's in, so then it, the, 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 in Mecca became more and more contentious until finally there were arguments and fights. And that was the reason they said, we want you to leave because you bring contention and dissension, you divide families and you cause arguments. So he goes to Medina. And in his first year, he was in the same mode of making, getting rid of contentious things. So there were two phases in his life when he was a problem solver in the community. Okay. Now, what happens is, is that there's several things that happen, but one of them is, is that they've left Mecca, and they're not getting poor. They need money. They need cash. And so, uh, the, the, after the first year was, he started an argument with the Jews, and then another argument with the Jews, and then he also sent out raiders to raid the caravans. Now, the caravans were going to be from Mecca. So this gave him two solutions. Number one, it brought him revenge, and it also brought money. So, but in the beginning, the first year, there was no jihad. The jihad starts after the first year. Okay, okay. And, and the money was, was for what, mostly? Well, the money was for living expenses, and the way they got their money was is they raided a caravan and uh, kidnapped, killed one person, kidnapped one or two others, and then took the, the goods they were carrying. Mm-hmm. And it was at this point, by the way, that the Quran revealed the method of splitting the money. Muhammad was to get one-fifth, and the jihadists were to get 80%. One-fifth and 30%. Who gets the rest? On 80%. Oh, 80%. He gets, he gets 20. In other words, he gets one part in five, and they get the other four parts in five. I see, I see, I see. Okay, okay. Okay. All right. And you said he kidnapped some people, so what happens to them? They were ransomed. I see. Okay. Okay. Now, by the way, kidnapping and ransoming were known ways of doing tribal business in Arabia. He didn't invent that. Right. But he did adapt it to his own needs. So that was just conventional business, and he was participating. Yes. I mean, this was a known way of doing business. Now, there was a slight change. Originally, the tradition was is that the leader of the band got 25%, but he only took 20 Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So small details. Downgraded that. Yeah. Okay. More generous. Okay. And that was near the beginning of the uh, Medina period. And so, yes. 
how did that well I guess be you know without <laughs> there's so much here that I really want to ask at once I'll try to be organized but in the in that first period that we we spent very little time on just now um, most of that period which I guess um, was what about 13 years total that he was in that he was well known at least in Mecca in Mecca yes right and so during that 13 years, what what was happening most of that time? I think it was fairly peaceful, right? Well, it was peaceful, but it was argumentative and contentious. Okay. He would go down to the mosque every day. Uh, he was relentless. And uh, by the way, the things that he was, all of his personal qualities became part of the civilization of Islam. He never would accept failure. He was relentless in pressing his issue. And this is what we find with Islam as well. Okay, and when you said he went down to the mosque, the the mosques didn't exist before his teaching. Oh, the mosque, it was later, to, I shouldn't say the mosque, he went down to the Kaaba, okay. a square stone building. Mecca was a pilgrimage center, mm -hmm. and what would happen is, is that I think three to four times a year there would be pilgrimages come to Mecca, and the Kaaba was a common religious structure. It's not like really a house. Okay. Kaaba means cube. And this, okay. by the way, there were other Kaabas in southern Arabia, too, which were pilgrimage sites. There okay. were religious rituals that were, went with the Kaaba, usually circling around it, doing prayers as you walk around it. The Muslim way of using worship at the, at the Kaaba, which is a uh, center of worship. As a matter of fact, everyone prays towards the Kaaba. Okay. Uh, okay. Okay. So there were three. There were different idols inside. It was said there were three hundred and sixty idols inside of the Kaaba. So okay. he would go down there to preach. Okay. Okay. And w was there a name to the religion before that? Uh, not for him. He named his religion Islam, but the other religions didn't have names that I know of. Uh, they were just focused on whatever gods they were. Worshipping, is, yeah. is that fair to say? Yes. In those days, there were gods of tribes and gods of places. So okay. you, would be, you would have one god, you would marry a woman, and she would bring her own religion into the house. Okay. So there would be two religions in the house, the religion of the husband and the religion of the wife. All right. And this, was, this went along very easily. There was not a lot of contentiousness at all. All right. And, and so most of these different religions were compatible, in other words. Yes, yes. They were all similar Arabic religions, and they were quite compatible with each other. All right, all right. And then at one point in that 13 years, did Muhammad start saying that the only legitimate one was his? Yes, yes. He became insistent that all other forms were false and wrong. Okay. Like I say, until he said that, the Meccans were like, okay, fine, you're hearing, God's talking to you, fine, we don't care. And, uh, yeah. So, so was the how was the general culture in the previous period? I mean, I, I know we, we haven't defined how, much, how far back we're looking, but in general, the culture that Muhammad came into, was that a more or less peaceful culture, or, or how were things going? Well, it was tribal and, and, and raiding and small raids and warlike raids, kidnapping, stealing animals, stealing women, were a known method of living in Arabia. Okay, okay. It was just kind of disjointed and not 
coordinated and organized. But no, it was no, each, going... each tribe did its own business. Okay, okay. So that, if Muhammad hadn't brought in the new understanding, that could have potentially gone on for a long time. Yes, yes. Because there was kind of a balance of power. religion. Say again? It was kind of a balance of power between all these different tribes, right? Yes. But there was a certain harmony, even though they raided with each other and had allegiance and alliances. Uh, it was at least, shall we say, a stable culture, and its eyes did not go beyond the boundaries of Arabia. Okay, what year are we talking about, roughly? Well, let's see. We can do the math. He, he died in the year 632, and he was a religious teacher and a prophet for 23 years, so just subtract those out. Okay. 23 years. All right, so about, uh, what is it, 609 is when his teaching started, according to that, right? 10 years and 13 mm-hmm. years. And, right. Um, so prior to 609, we had this kind of uh, fluctuating balance of power where things were more or less stable between the various tribes for I guess quite a while before that, right? That had been going on for a yes. long time. And when you're talking about to the borders of Arabia, uh, the political borders were not the same as they are now, right? Oh, no, no, no. They were, they were very loose, and probably there was no sharp border between Syria and Arabia. Right. Uh, so if somebody wanted to see approximately what you're talking about, about where Arabia is on the current map, what's it going to look like? In the, actually, in the center of Saudi Arabia. Okay, okay, okay. And how big of an area? I mean, it's not as big as Saudi Arabia is now. No, no, no. He was in central Arabia, which is called the Hejaz, which includes both Mecca and Medina. Okay, okay. Relatively small compared to Saudi Arabia now. Well, you see, when you're talking about Saudi Arabia, a huge portion of Saudi Arabia is uninhabitable. Okay. So the habitable part, I'm not sure what percentage it was. All right, all right. And what about languages at that time? I mean, I, I know these aren't organized questions, but I'm just spontaneously asking you things to try to fill in a more dimensional understanding of what the world was like then. And I'm wondering, well, were, there, all, were there lots of different languages going on at the same time? No, they were all, they were all Arabic, but there were different dialects. Okay, okay. Because I know now... How similar the dialects were, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, now, Islam has gone into countries with many different languages, and even, even in the Middle East, we have different languages between Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Iran and, you know, different places like that. O- originally, it was all within a single language that this developed, right? Not necessarily. Uh, there were... There, you had Aramaic, for instance, which was spoken in Syria, which is similar to Arabic. Okay. It's a, uh, but it is not the same language. Okay. Yeah, Aramaic was one of the languages spoken at the time of Jesus, right? So That's you correct. Were, so that and, and Hebrew, I think. And so you were, that was uh, 600 or so years earlier. And so Aramaic was still around from, from that period or before. Yes. Okay, and then while he was in Mecca, there was contention, as you were saying, but he was gradually bringing in this idea that the other gods were not legitimate. Mm -hmm. Is Is that correct? Yes. Okay, and in spite of that, you were saying in our 
you know, earlier part of our discussion, that that part of the teaching that came out of the period in Mecca was actually quite harmonious and attractive, and it's what a lot of people who convert to Islam become aware of first. It's not really yes. aggressive and contentious. It can comparison. be contentious, but in the sense of just having arguments. Okay. Nobody. Let's put it this way: No one died in Mecca. Okay. 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 At least there was not one fight in which a man got his head bloodied, but that's as far as it went. Okay. Okay. It was just kind of religious arguments and yes, debates and things. Okay. So, what is there a way to understand what it was that led to this transition from? intellectual disagreements to aggressive warfare in the, all in the Medina when period. Mecca, when he went from Mecca to Medina, everything changed. Yeah. You see, there was a problem when he got to Medina, and the problem was led to his first jihad, basically. He portrayed himself in Mecca. If you are a middle-aged businessman who suddenly is a prophet of Allah, you have, you have a need to justify yourself and explain yourself. And the way he did it was, was to argue that he was the, in the same lineage as the Jewish prophets, Moses, okay. David, Solomon, okay. Adam. So You're talking said, about gene genealogically, actually, right? To, to be in that family tree. He didn't claim DNA, although he, later he does. He claims to be a descendant of Abraham. Okay. So he, but what he, the way he portrays himself is, is that he, the archangel Gabriel, was the same archangel who brought Moses his information and all the others. So basically, he portrayed himself as a Jewish prophet or in that lineage. Yeah, yeah, okay. Just with a well, slightly he, different understanding of things. Right. Okay. And so what happens is, is that the there were no Jews to speak of in Mecca. So when he said that he was telling all these, here's the story of Moses, and here's the story of Noah, and, but they're all different. They're different from what's in the uh, Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. Okay. But when he got to Medina, there were three Jewish tribes. And they basically took a look at Muhammad and said, uh, you're not a prophet. Okay. Well, this undercut his entire reason for being. Right. And this was what started his arguments with the three tribes of Jews in um, Medina, and what led to two years later their total annihilation. Okay. And, I mean, how did they get annihilated? Did he form an army, or, or well, what happened? there were three tribes. The first tribe, he, the fight started, and he defeated them, and basically said, you've got to leave town and leave all your money behind. So they did that. Then there was another fight with the second tribe, and the same thing happened. Now, he gave some indication that he might kill them or enslave them, but due to the fact that they had allies in Medina, that the, and they defended the Jewish tribe from Muhammad. The third tribe, he said, supported his enemies, the Meccans, and so that, was the, that tribe was enslaved, and in one day's time, 800 male Jews lost their heads. This is a very famous event. How did he get the that, manpower together to do that? Now, he had followers, remember. Okay. And those, some of these followers left Mecca to come with him to Medina. Okay, okay. And he already had converts in Medina. And one of the things that happened was, is that as soon as he had money, 
he became much more popular. Right, right, right. So when his caravan raids worked, he became much more popular. Okay, so it kind of snowballed at that point. Snowballed. But in the, in the meanwhile, half the Jews were taken out, uh, either ex- exiled, exiled, enslaved, or killed. Okay. And of course, he got the, and he got their, and of course, he got their goods as well. Right. So it was kind of the beginning of the creation of a physical empire, almost. Yes. 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 All right. Okay. All right. And as that grew, you said that after a certain period of time, everybody left was a Muslim. How long did that take? Thirteen years. Okay. Okay. Thirteen years to full conversion. Um, and, it, and it literally snowballed. Because what happened was, look, the tribes in Arabia, and there were many of them, were used to alliances that were temporary, but they also had the attitude of backing the strong horse. And it became clear that this man was going to win. They all got on the bandwagon. Mm-hmm. There's even a, I believe one of the titles of a chapter in the Quran is basically about how they came in droves. Mm-hmm. That is, entire tribes would convert to Islam. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what they were really converting to, in essence, was they were joining the head of a, a fast-growing empire that looked like the most yes. powerful leader in the world. Yes. All right. And at this point, what, what were the main things that the converts had to believe? Was it just that... Allah was the only legitimate God, and that Muhammad was the only living prophet, or were there a lot of things in their life that they had to adopt in order to become members? Well, there were a lot of things they had to do, starting off with which, praying five times. Well, the first, it all starts with the Shahada. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Okay. That's the way you become a Muslim, if you repeat that in Arabic in front of witnesses. Okay, okay, okay. So that's the first step. Now, there were other, quickly, there are the five, he, intro, he introduces the five pillars. You had to pray five times a day. The first, the first pillar is the, the Shahada. There is no God but Allah, Muhammad is his prophet. Then you have prayer five times a day. You fast during Ramadan once a, once a year, and that's a lunar year. And then um, there is the, you have to take the Hajj to go to Mecca and pay the Zakat, the poll tax. So there was a tax, you have prayer, you have, oh, and you also have a lot of dietary restrictions. He became, uh, as a matter of fact, this is interesting, the dietary, proper dietary food is called halal, but mm-hmm. kosher food is also halal. Hmm. So he adopted okay. several things from Judaism, Okay. one of which was the idea of kosher. Okay. Food had to be prepared a certain way, killed a certain way, some things you could eat, some things you couldn't eat. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that means certain kinds of meat are okay and certain kinds are not, right? Yes, exactly. You have this idea of clean animals and not clean animals. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and who does the tax get paid to? Muhammad. Okay, okay. And then, so if he's the guy that gets the tax money, then when he eventually died, there would be a lot of interest in who his successor would be, I would imagine. <laughs> It was not only money, it was power. Okay. And that was the caliph. Okay. So the the caliph is like the presidency in a religious connotation. Is that correct? 
it's it's more like a pope and a king. Okay, okay. It's not only you. It's you see, he integrated everything into one item. There's not just a secular power, and not just a religious power, but the two are fused into one. Okay. Um, in other words, the the very definition of a theocracy is yes. what, is what you're talking about here. Yes, exactly. Okay, and the caliph is that position that's like a combined pope and king in the world mm-hmm. of Islam. Mm-hmm. Okay, so is there's these questions? I'm sure are showing my complete ignorance of the subject, but that's why we're doing this anyway. Um, I'm probably not the only one, and I think it's really good if if we really you know get some some knowledge so we're not making wild guesses about what's going on with Islam. And and my understanding from what you're saying is that the caliph, if I'm produce, pronouncing that right, is a position, and there's only one of those people in that position yes. at any given time. Yes. Now the way it works out in history, of course, is is that we're discussing theory here. As it, but in real life, what happened was is that sometimes there were two or three caliphs at the same time. And of course, oh. they were at war with each other. And they're all claiming to be the only one that's real, right? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, all right. So, um, just as a side note, what's the current situation with who's supposed to be the caliph? <laughs> well, the last caliph was, uh, that was generally held to be in power was in uh, Turkey. And that, but that ended in either I think twenty two or nineteen twenty two or nineteen twenty four. What happened was is any time the, the Turks had been in power so long that corruption set in, and it basically the whole efficiency of government ground down, and there was a military overthrow of the Sultan. Uh, but now then, of course, we have another argument because Islamic State says we have a caliph, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Okay, okay. And and all the other Muslims, what did they say about that? If they're uniform? Well, of course, they say he's not... It all depends. Uh, of course, we had a gentleman in Orlando who said, yes, he is the caliph. Okay. And that was... Uh, so there, most do not accept him, but you, you see, there was no clear stated way to do this. Muhammad did not leave behind a method of succession. Okay. He died... And uh, then they had to work it out on their own. But it was only natural for his closest companions, uh, when they got power, to rule as he did, because they lived with an example of what it was supposed to be like. Yeah. So they ruled as he did. Well, so is it important that, that there's a caliph now and that people agree on that, or does that not really matter that much? Ah, you've touched on a heavy matter here. Uh, Some... What has happened is, you've got to understand that one man ruling a small state works in one way. But when you try to get put together a world empire, having one man to run it all, doesn't really work so well. Because there's a whole lot of different cultures and civilizations that don't necessarily work well together. Right. So under theory, under theory... There should only be one caliph. If, if Islam reaches its full potential, which is, you have to understand that it is the purpose of Islam that uh, all the world will become Islamic. Right. It's interesting. Multiculturalists love Islam, but Islam is a strict monoculture which states that all other civilizations must become Islamic. 
and Islamic to the degree where they basically lose their history even, and if possible, their entire language. Do they function under one centralized uh, control point or government at that point? Well, in theory, they should. But, of course, if you think about it, I mean, let's just snap our fingers and say that every person on the face of the earth is now a Muslim. Can you possibly imagine that there would be one person who could, never, first off, even run the whole operation, or that everyone would agree on how it's to be run? I mean, it's just simply not going to work. Well, I, th- I think what, what happens, if you can take, for example, the history of Catholicism as an example, um, if you do get one person who's, you know, being the Pope for you know, in that case, you've got an uh, oligarchy that's a little bit less visible behind him. But you do have a single figurehead that is capable of being mm-hmm. recognized internationally. And I'm just wondering if that's kind of what they would consider as the ideal situation. I don't know. Most Muslims spend very little time on this idea because they consider themselves to be Egyptians. You see, the idea of the nation-state... Uh, made it a lot more difficult to think of the Ummah as being just one. That is, there's only one Ummah, one community. Okay. Well, that may be, but uh, that doesn't mean that people actually see each other as true equals. Mm-hmm. I mean, theoretically, all Muslims are the same, but when you start dealing with Muslims, you'll discover that, that uh, there are many of them who don't like each other based on race and culture. I mean, it's just it's a human proposition. Right. Well, yes. I mean, a little bit earlier, you were you were talking about the division between Shia and Sunni approaches, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's an and example that has, of what and you that just has said. some cultural basis because it's the difference between the Persian and the Arab, at least in its roots. Now, of course, today there are people who are Shia who are not Persian, but they're Arab. Uh huh. Okay. Okay. And there are Shia who are simply I don't know. I guess I mean anybody can be a Shia. So, so when they talk, you know, even, even in, in a superficial way from the people who don't have that depth of understanding, they talk about um, the ISIS Muslims and, and others establishing what they call a caliphate. Mm-hmm. But that caliphate really is supposed to be the world, right? And it's supposed yes. to be unified yes, yes, under yes. one caliph. Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay. And so, in, in theory, that would be the goal that they point toward, you know, mm-hmm. may, maybe... That's the, that's the perfect theory. Okay, so ISIS, you know, would maybe have to be satisfied with a caliphate in a limited area for the moment, but they would be telling the followers that what they're after is making the planet the caliphate. Yes, that, that is the big picture for uh, Islamic State. They're quite utopian. The Islamic State, which most people think of as just vicious, evil people if you're outside of their realm, sees himself as very pious mm-hmm. and doing God's work. And mm-hmm. it is their purpose to bring about a true world harmony, but that will not tolerate evil. Right, and, and everybody who's not a member of their group is, by definition, evil, right? Well, an obstruction, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, they have, they have video footage. I think it's, I don't know if it's gotten onto television, but certainly all over the Internet showing eight- and ten-year-old kids, um, you know, making it very clear that they want everybody who's non-Muslim to be murdered. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess if that goes along with what you just said, that's a prerequisite for world peace. 
Well, it's certainly one. <laughs> elimination of your enemies is a way to bring about peace, yes. Right. I mean, it's very similar to the cartel that uh, Alex and others call globalists, right? Because they... I don't know about globalists. Well, they have this long, uh, multi-generational plan leading, they hope, to consolidation of a one-world government that completely controls everybody. Mm-hmm. They don't consider themselves very pious, at least in the way that we're talking about. Right, right. But they do share the idea that there should only be one ruling power in existence. Right, right. So, um, is it true, and, and I kind of get this impression from what you've been saying to these questions recently, that the idea of a unified caliphate is not really that critical of an issue for most Muslims? No. It's not, at least, until Islamic State came along, it was not something that most of them even worried themselves about. Okay, okay. So it's more individualized communities in each culture, right? Not, yes. not, not worried about all being the same, or, or worried about who is the singular leader of the whole organization. No, no, no. They're, they're very normal people in that light. I mean, they, the Kurds like to hang out with the Kurds. And if at all possible to have them have their own Kurdish mosque. Okay, okay. So the unifying factor is the allegiance to Muhammad and Allah, right? Yes. All right. Um, what I'd like to do too is um, I want to go back and fill in a couple of things that for me left questions. One is um, the current situation, you know, in the Middle East, uh, apparently there's some major contention between Shia and Sunni branches of, mm-hmm. of the same belief system that is overall the same, but they have major differences. And, and this reflects itself in uh, government-level contention and contention mm-hmm. between cultures. And is there a way to you know, at, at least for the moment, give people a little bit of understanding of the major characteristics and differences between Shia and Sunni, if those are the two main uh, groups under under Islam. Well, there are also smaller groups, the Alawites, Ahmadiyyas, but the big division is between Sunni and Shia. Okay. Now, we may need to point out something here. The average Muslim is much more apt to be murdered or killed if he's going to be dying violence by another Muslim than he is a non-believer. Mm-hmm. These are just some of, the, some of the harsh realities of Islam. Is that because each side feels that they're the only legitimate interpretation of Islam and so they, they don't feel is, too friendly toward the other ones? There is that, and then there's also one more thing. Remember, uh, there was a... Ibsen said, the playwright said, if you hang a gun on the wall in the first act, you must use the gun by the third act. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, once you've introduced the idea that it's okay to kill those who are not Muslims, jihad, right? The, you've, you've introduced violence as a method of success resolving problems. Okay. Now then, all you have to do is just declare the other person is not a Muslim, and therefore you can kill them. But the idea of killing is already in. Here's another example. Muhammad had a bad temper, or a frequent temper. Mm-hmm. If you and I get into an argument and I lose my temper, mm-hmm. in our culture, in our civilization, I've lost the argument, right? Okay, right. Well, in Islam, being f- screaming at someone and being hot-headed in anger 
is something that Muhammad would do. So therefore, uh -huh. anger is an acceptable way of arguing. Okay. And murder is also an accepted way of resolving differences. But once you can get angry and kill somebody, if they're non-believers, then all you have to do is to say, well, this person's not really a Muslim, so getting angry at him is a normal way of doing business. Okay. So is it commonly understood by Sunnis and by Shias in the majority that the other um, approach is really not legitimate Islam? This will vary, of course, from Muslim to Muslim, but at the core there is a difference. Now, let, let's not make too much of this. They can kill each other, but the Shia and the Sunni can also get together to kill Kafirs. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. Look, it's all very contentious. Remember, the ideal model includes murder as a way of solving arguments. Yeah, yeah. Once you have that idea, uh, it's going to be used in ways that are sometimes can't be anticipated. Right. Yeah, there's no doubt that murder, if it's carried on widely enough, does lead to peace when all the other side is completely not there. <laughs> well, once the other side is completely. But in this case, each side is so large that I don't see how they could ever do it. Yeah. Don't, rem don't forget that when Saddam Hussein was in power, he and the Iranians had, had a war which was, I'm making the figure up, but I think it's roughly correct, a million people died. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah, because each side was completely illegitimate in the eyes of the right. other. Right, and the other one's completely legitimate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Religious wars can be very vicious. If you don't believe it, look at look in Europe. The Hundred Years' War, the Thirty Years' War, mm -hmm. I mean, Albigensian War, they don't call it war, but nevertheless there was many killed. Yeah. Uh, it, can, it can get really terrible. Yeah, I at one time I was studying... Um, which religions had engaged, which people following different religions had engaged in, you know, killing their, their adversaries who didn't agree with their beliefs. And pretty much every religion at some point has had a period like that or more than one. And I was amazed to find that even the Buddhist religion that I found, you know, thought was the most peaceful, there was a place in Africa where they were killing all the Sikhs because they didn't agree with them. It's just, you know... I Religion can be really great if it's uplifting people's lives, and it can be pretty dangerous when it says, you know, to kill the people that don't agree. It seems to me that religion can bring out both the very best and mm -hmm. the very worst in people. Yeah. Yeah, you can see that historically. So, you know, when you're trying to understand how this all relates to the current world situation, I mean, it gets pretty complicated because... ISIS didn't just come out of nowhere. I mean, they were uh, cultured, grown, armed, trained, and directed originally by the U.S. and NATO working together uh, very uh, methodically to get them to the point they're at now. And I think now they have their own energy and their own ideas. And they, uh, they and the people that follow them, and, and as you said, more people will be wanting to join as they appear more powerful. Um, they're definitely being helped to come in all over Western Europe and the U.S. and to carry out their jihad. So we have an interesting situation that's right now, and I think some of the hardest, the people in the hardest part of that situation are the peaceful, you know, people who want to live normal lives and have been uh, born into the Muslim religion and may be wondering, you know, where it's going to all go at this point. 
Well, it is. I mean, uh, Muslims are not really happy with the way things are working out. Uh, there's just too much contentiousness. Uh, they have the problem with what they call Islamophobia, which is people saying that there's things about Islam I don't like. Uh, we live in a very contentious period. But then again, humanity's always been contentious. Mm -hmm. I yeah. Don't, I don't know that it's worse now or whatever. No, the technology just makes it appear that way. Right. <laughs> you know, but but you certainly, you know, said quite a few times that the that period in Mecca originally, even though there was contention, there were things being taught about Islam at that time that made it, remember you were talking about the attractive qualities of a coherent community that all helps each other and everybody watches out for each other and things like that. I mean, that was definitely a big part originally, right? Well, it's, it's, it's a very positive thing. Everybody w would like to belong to a larger group. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're very communal people. Right. No one lives alone. Yeah. So, are, are there major elements uh, of that that are still taught and spread today that, that are, you know, the attractive part that, that people would want? Well, to I mean, if you, if, you, if you show interest in Islam... Mm -hmm. They're going to explain to you all the attractive parts. They're not, uh, I mean, that's just the way it works. I okay, mean, so so I, I know that you're totally familiar with what those are. What are the main elements of that part? That are attractive? Yeah. Oh, it's very simple. First off, you're a member of the Ummah, which is you're a member of a group, which is ha which is which has walls around it, so you belong to something. Mm -hmm. It's not vague. Okay. I mean, for instance, I one time in my earlier career was a hippie, but there were no formal boundaries to being a hippie. Yeah. Right? It was kind yeah, of whatever you wanted it to be. You said you were. Well, I guess you were. Yeah. But in Islam, you have a clear you have clear boundaries. And Muslims refer to each other as brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. That's that's really a very attractive idea. Yeah. to have brothers and sisters. Now, Christians use the same concept, and others have done it. But nevertheless, the reason they use it is it's attractive mm -hmm. to think that you have a large family. Uh, I mean, we have an entire business called insurance, which is a way to take as an individual mm -hmm. and to insure yourself some sort of help that comes outside of your normal way. Yeah, they call it so spreading, spreading the risk. Yes. So it's very attractive to have a group you can belong to in which you are a brother or a sister. Mm -hmm. And it's also attractive to know what the rules are, and you obey the rules, the good things are going to happen. If you don't obey the rules, bad things will happen. Mm -hmm. So uh, no, there's, there's a lot is very attractive in just in from the community aspect. Right. And then everyone has somewhere in the back of their mind the question, why am I here? And yes. what's going to happen after I die? Yeah. Uh, atheists say, well, nothing's going to happen. You're just dead. Yeah, you, you don't questions. exist. Right. Yeah, I think that's a huge issue, and and that's probably something that's led to the um, rising of religions of all kinds, is that people really want to know what's really going on. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the next existential question. Who am I? That is, really, who am I? Why am I here? And what's my destination? Where am I going? Right. Uh, well, that's the reason I call... That's the reason I call atheism a form of religion in the sense that it is a response to a religious question. Yeah, it's the belief they, that nothing is going to happen after you die. Right. So, so anyway, these, these are, okay. Islam offers an answer to all those questions. 
Okay, so so what's the answer to what's going to happen after you die? Well, if you're a Muslim, you're first going to suffer the punishment of the grave, then you suffer the uncertainty of Judgment Day, and then if you go to heaven, uh, as it's described, it's described as um, material benefits plus. I mean, you have fine food and 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 the Garden of Paradise. They don't refer to it as heaven. Mm-hmm, okay. Paradise. Uh, you, there's low-hanging fruit. There's wine you can drink, and you won't get a hangover. And you have all the sex you can even possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. You have thousand-year orgasms. Now, does, is this for women as well, or just men? Well, you've asked a frequent question. <laughs> uh, the, the pleasures of heaven are described from a male standpoint. For instance, you, as a uh, Muslim in heaven, you have really all the sex you can imagine and want, but it doesn't mention what happens to the wife. So it's talking to the men, and it's kind of leaving the women to try to figure out what it means for them. Is that right? Yes, but uh, although Islam says they were the first religion to give women their rights, in truth, I've gone through and counted all their rights and all the, all the pluses and all the minuses. And although there are some rights and, and things that work out well for women, uh, in general, they are to be told what to do. Mm-hmm. Testimony is worth half that of a man in court. Uh, there are there are many things. For instance, women wear burqas. You don't see a man wearing a burqa, do you? Uh, not yet. I haven't seen one of those. No. Not yet. <laughs> Actually, it's interesting. Some special forces did wear burqas in order to, to pull off an assassination in Syria. Uh, okay, interesting. No, uh, and uh, it probably would be frowned on. To, I mean, there's a lot of uh, a lot of unusual things going on now with, with uh, sexual identity, and it doesn't seem to be very... I can see where this is going. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not encouraged in Muslim countries, I guess, right? No, it is not. <laughs> okay. But <I> mean, um, <laughs> so, no, I haven't, haven't noticed any men wearing burqas at this point. Um, they did talk about, as far as rights of women and things like that, people do talk about and I'm not sure exactly what years these are referring to, but they refer to a golden age of Islam. What do you know about that? Yes, there's two of them. One in France, no, sorry, not France. One in Spain, and one in Baghdad. And let's talk about that. Yeah. Because there are two things that always come along with the golden age of both Spain and Baghdad, which was the Muslims were really cool people; they had it all. And the Christians were like dumb, eating dirt, and living in caves. Okay. We have to ask ourselves a question. Why is it that the Europe became so impoverished, both intellectually and financially? And the reason for that is... Well, is well that first of all, let me just interject. What years are we talking about, approximately? Ooh, these are going to be really rough, and I don't, don't quote me on this. Yeah, that's okay. Somewhere in the neighborhood of, let's see, six. They invaded Spain in 711, uh, sometime around, say, in the year 900, that's roughly speaking. Is that in so both of those locations? 800 to 900 A.D. Spain and Baghdad? Roughly the same, yes. Okay, okay. So, sorry to interrupt, but go ahead. Anyway, so what happens is, is that the Golden Age is supposed to be everything is just wonderful and superb intellectual output, but let's take them separately. If the Spanish Golden Age was such a multicultural, wonderful thing, all right, and if it were so superior, mm-hmm. why is it that the Spanish fought for 700 years to get them thrown out? 
Do you see what I'm saying? That is, there's something contradictory here. And the answer mm-hmm. to that okay. is, is it was wonderful for the Muslims because they were the rulers and the Christians and the Jews were dhimmis, D-H-I-M-M-I-S. And they were not even basically citizens of Spain. They were subjects of the Muslims. So the Golden Age worked out very good for the rulers, but it didn't work out quite as well for those who are ruled. Okay, and when you say rulers, you mean pretty much the whole population of Muslims at the time? Yes. Okay, not Although just the kings. Or, go ahead. Not just, not just those in political power. Right, because inherently a Muslim is infinitely superior socially to the Kafir. Right, right. So we had a... We had a if a civil rights person looked at the rule in the golden age in Spain, he would go, well, sure, the man's doing well, but the, those who are supporting the man are not doing well at all. Mm-hmm. Okay. The same thing was true in, in um, Baghdad, because the, it was supposed to be a wonderful age, because intellectual material, mm-hmm. but most of the intellectual material came from the Christians and the Persians. Hmm. And uh, th- this is only expected because if in the Arabs who came out of the deserts of Arabia, the first book written in Arabic was the Quran. So there was not some major intellectual material that the Arabs brought to the table. They learned from the Persians, they learned from the uh, Greeks, and they learned from the Romans. And how did they learn? They learned with books that were translated by Christians, primarily. Now, part of this reason for the exalting of the golden age of Baghdad and Spain and the, how bad the, off the Europeans were during the Dark Ages, and by the way, the primary cause of the problem of the Europeans was is that the Mediterranean Ocean became dominated completely by the Arab pirate, by the Muslim pirates, and so 90% of the trade that went to Europe disappeared. I don't know what city you're living in, but if all of a sudden 90% of the traffic, 90% of the planes, and 90% of the trains disappear, you'll just discover you're living in a very impoverished area. Well, yeah, I mean, in, in, in the modern dependent age on technology, most people would just die. Yes. So the golden age was golden because, the, in comparison to the Europeans, because the Europeans were crushed because of the piracy on the Mediterranean. Hmm. Now then, the Baghdad Golden Age wound up very badly, however, for intellectual thought, because there was always this argument between what we'll call the rationalists in Baghdad, and then those who said, no, 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 there is nothing, that truth is determined by revelation. There was another contending school, the Metazolites, that said, no, truth is discovered by experimentation and reason and logic. Well, it turns out that argument was won by those who said revelation. Al-Ghazali was the person who drove the final nail in, but in the end, intellectual thought in the golden age of Baghdad terminated when it stated there was no such thing as cause and effect, and there were no natural laws. Okay. Now, as a trained scientist, let me assure you that once you don't have any cause and effect, and there are no laws, you have no reason to be a scientist, because science is all about finding out laws and determining cause and effect. Right. So, the brief period of thought in the golden age which was struggling to bring in critical thought the critical thinkers lost big time okay and this is an explanation by the way this interior philosophy is if you think about it the arabs have plenty of money and yet if you think about the nobel prizes in science 
There, are, there is no such thing as a Nobel Prize in science that's been given to a Muslim scientist working in a Muslim land. Now, there's been Muslim scientists who have won Nobel Prizes, but they were working in Kafir lands. Mm-hmm. So this needs to be explained and how it fits together with the Golden Age. And the reason is the Golden Age wound up with a anti-scientific thought. Okay. Wow, that's really interesting. So I find it fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Any of these little points could turn into, you know, whole classes we, we, in we, themselves. The, the whole book, there's a whole book in what I've just said in the last four minutes. Yeah, exactly right. So if, if you're relating that to things happening in the current world right now, and you, I mean... It's a little more complicated because there there are many different cultures that are all identifying themselves as Muslim. It's not just one unified one. Uh, That's exactly correct. Right, but I but I imagine that there's there's some uniformity in belief that's coming from what you just described in Baghdad. Well, there's two there's two things that are bringing uniformity. Number one, they all have the same Muhammad, they all have the same Allah. So that right. means right there, immediately, you have a certain similarity between all Muslims. Okay. And, that, and that's represented by the Sirah and the Hadith, correct? Yes, and the Quran. And the Quran. So okay. that's, what's, that's what's common to them. Okay. Now then, what has happened is, in the past, when Islam invades a society, it has adapted to Islam and kept as much of its old society as possible. So, okay. therefore, this gives rise to the Sufi movement, which tries to bring mysticism into a very harsh theocratic system. Yeah, that's, a, that's an un- is, unlikely mix. Yeah, it would be interesting to see what happened with that. Well, you, it is an unlikely mix, and indeed some will say it's logically impossible. But here's what's happening to the uniformity. The Saudis are quite wealthy. They are, spend more money to expert Wahhabi Islam than the Soviet Union did at the peak of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. So what is happening is, is that some of the cultural diversity that can happen within Islam is being taken away. I give you Chechnya as an example, or we can also use Malaysia. Chechnya used to be Islamic, but they were basically all Sufis. Okay. But what has happened is, is that the Wahhabis come in with a lot of money, and they educate you as to the real Islam, which is basically the Islam of Medina. Okay. okay. This is happening, for instance, in, uh, uh, in uh, oh, I'm trying to think of the name, in the Balkans country. I'll think about it in just a moment. Okay. Um, uh, which is, well, this is very aggravating. I can't think of it. I've been it, in the country itself. Yeah, oh, well. it'll come back when you stop thinking about it. But <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, it's a very soft form of Islam. Okay. In which you, and now then what's happening is the Wahhabis are moving in, and the Islam is becoming much more strict and harsh. Okay. So there's another uniformity that's coming about, which comes about because of the exportation of Wahhabism into all Muslim land. And the, and you of the mosques in America are paid for with Wahhabi money. Okay, and so you're saying, and most of that's coming from Saudi Arabia, from what you're saying. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting, and that's primarily oil money. Is that true? Yes. Okay. This, by the way, explains a phenomena which we saw in, in um, that is, in general, it is found that when Muslims immigrate to, say, Europe, mm-hmm. the original Muslims are tolerant enough. But now then, their children are being raised in a world that's financed by the Wahhabis. Okay. And so the children are much more fierce jihadis than their parents are. And this is the influence of the Wahhabi money. 
And that may explain some of the videos in circulation showing really um, aggressive 8- and 10-year-old kids running around saying that people should have their heads cut off. Yes. I mean, I've yes. watched that. It's amazing. Also, so, fear-inducing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it certainly could be, and and it can be. Uh, I guess it's part of of the impetus behind the things like the complete overthrow of Sweden as a culture right now, right? Mm-hmm. And other countries that could go in that direction. So the problem here is is the problem is not the Muslims in Sweden. The problem is the Swedes. We've become paralyzed mm-hmm. by our own inability. We've created, the intellectuals of the West have created a multicultural world in which all societies are equivalent or equally valid. Right, well, I I noticed that this social engineering that you're referring to is really not necessarily just spontaneous, spontaneously adapted by the general population. It's being orchestrated in a very... very much so. In a very specific manner by the, the rulers of the country. You know, through well, we through media, instance, through government, through laws, through entertainment, all this stuff. And also through the universities. Yeah, very we much defeated, through the universities, yeah. We, de- we defeated the Soviet Union, and we said we defeated communism, but we did not. Communism as an intellectual idea is very alive and well inside of our universities. Yeah, I know. I've been there recently, and, and it's it's totally overwhelmingly amazing. Yes, it is. Um, so So what's happening is... All of these rulers have been brought on board. You know, you look at the rulers in, in Germany and in Sweden and all these places that say you cannot talk about in specific terms what's happening as society disintegrates. Uh, otherwise, you're uh, racist and all these terrible other things that you are. I've been called all the names in the book. Yeah, exactly. And, As a matter of uh, fact, you would say that our whole conversation is a racist conversation. I'm sure that that would be seen that way, but um, I'm just, you know, I guess, and and that's, you know, there's so many things that come to my mind at once. You just brought up the the dichotomy between what would be called a logical or scientific or experimental reasoning type approach and a what revelation approach, right? And so, yes. what we're trying to do with this conversation, I think, is just understanding you know, clarify what's happening, where it came from, where it's going, what it's based on, what are the... We're trying to do factual reasoning. This is what I would call education, yeah. Yes. And the the problem is it's really not allowed within the pure culture of Islam, right? It's not only not not allowed in the pure culture of Islam. Let me me tell you, uh, it's no longer allowed in the universities either. Yeah, yeah. Increasingly, universities are centers of indoctrination, not critical thought. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, I, I, I'm literally dealing with that every day right now. I'm one of those people of highly questionable intelligence that has gone back into the middle of that on purpose. I can't believe mm-hmm. that people would do that, but some do. And And what I'm witnessing there is it's gotten to the point where it's not just in what's being talked about, it's in the textbooks. Yes. You know, that they're actually teaching racial division, they're teaching people to hate each other in health yes. in healthcare because I'm all involved in health. They're teaching that um, different groups of people based on their religion, their race, their nationality, etc., they need different kinds of healthcare because they're really different kinds of people. And if you don't understand mm-hmm. what's primarily different about people, you're going to give them the wrong healthcare. 
I mean, mm-hmm. any way they can teach division, that's what they're into right now. It's exactly correct. So, yeah, I'm, I'm still stunned by it, and I'm, I've been seeing it for years. But, um, Makes me weep. Yeah, so it, it seems to me, you know, and, and I hope that, that you'll continue this with us in future uh, installments, because I, I don't think there's a, a course like this that is just straight-out exploration with no, no preconceptions that exists in the world that I'm aware no, of. there's not. And we need, to, we need to make a good one. This should be Chapter 1. And, <laughs> and, and so, you know, I guess what I'm getting at here in this, what I'm trying to say, is that to understand what's going on now, the, one thing that just jumps out at you is at a very high level, it's incredibly well-coordinated. It's not spontaneous. The, mm-hmm. the, the leadership, so-called, of, that's been put into all of these Western countries is all cooperating to make sure that these changes, you know, and it, invasive changes toward violence and a lot of death, that they happen and that nobody slows them down. Right? I mean, it's you just know, we really start, clear. We need, we need to start drawing this to a close. This installment, you mean? Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, we're just about at one hour. We've got a couple of minutes. But, okay. Um, so, all right. I guess if you wanted to wrap this up and kind of say where we are now in the world and what seems to be, you know, what's happening is that we've gotten a coordinated, and you tell me if you think this is accurate, we've gotten a coordinated effort between the forces that seem to be in charge of all of the major governments with the possible exception of Russia and Japan that I can think of, and that they are bringing in the uh, creation of a worldwide caliphate if they can, and they want to do it by violence. We have the left in alliance with the Muslims. They see each other as good partners because they both want to create a utopian society. The thing of it is, is the left has never really studied their history with regards to Islam. And they don't need to because the left are utopians. I've talked with a woman who claimed to be a communist, and I said how badly it worked out, and she said, oh, no, 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 no. Real Islam, I mean, <laughs> real Islam, real communism has never been tried. Uh-huh. Those are the words of a utopian. Yes. Right? It's the beauty of the idea. Well, since utopians have no need of history, they just need their ideas. But it was the left who brought the Khomeini to power in Iran. Mm-hmm. They were going to use Khomeini to overthrow the Shah. Well, Khomeini did overthrow the Shah, and five days later he issued death warrants for all the members of the Communist Party, the Tudor Party, in Iran. Right. So there's a lesson there in history for utopians. Well, you could say the same thing about many so-called isms and belief systems, and in a a way, you know, whether it's fascist or communist or whatever, it doesn't really make any difference because the real dichotomy is between those that want freedom for everybody, as long as you don't hurt anybody else, and the ones that want to kill everybody that gets in the way to perfect utopia. Here's a perfect way to wire this up. There are post-communist societies, there are post-Nazi societies, but there are no post-Islamic societies. Wow, that's something to think about. So next time we will get into um, ways forward and, and, you know, the options that exist for people in the various countries of the world to get to a place of harmony and peace without 
um, something unpleasant happening along the way. I'm all for it. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Dr. Warner. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Okay, there goes Dr. Bill Warner, and I hope you really got a lot out of that. One of the, the main impressions that I've got from it is that one short visit like that is really not enough. I mean, this is <laughs> the basics of it may be fairly easy to grasp, but there's a lot of complexity to it. There's a lot more that I would really like to know from Dr. Warner. And, you know, we might get other experts on in the future, but he's very open, cooperative. He's gone into this in such great depth. He's not a person of um, discrimination, racism, or hate, or anything like that. I don't, I don't pick up any of that from Dr. Warner, at least at this point. And uh, his idea of political Islam is really interesting. And I thought his example of blocking the street was a nice, simple way to you know, explain it, that if you just want to pray and you have a certain way to pray five times a day, that's a typical religious, um, you know, practice. But if you go outside and you block a busy street and stop everybody from getting to work or whatever they're doing, that's different. And it could be called religious, but the fact that you're stopping other people from having their rights to what they want to do, that in his terminology makes it uh, political. But I want to go back for a minute to the question of religion, and, and I know our, our time is short here. I'm going to try to get through a lot of important things, so I may talk a little bit quickly, but um, hopefully I'll be coherent and explain what I'm trying to say. A religion is anything that has a doctrine that you, if you question it, then you're transgressing what you're supposed to do. In other words, you could, if you question it too severely, in some religions you could be excommunicated, you could be ostracized, or if, it, if what you're saying is too uncomfortable for the power structure of the religion, you could be tortured, or you could be killed, or your family could be killed, or worse. It gets really serious. This is a lot like... Um, you know, criticizing an organized crime organization that you're in, and it, it has similarities with questioning a tyrannical government. And in history, tyrannical governments have often been religious. Not just one particular religion, but almost every religion has gone through periods like that. When the teaching is somebody who says, you know, they're talking to God, so if you question them, you probably have to be killed. And... Um, in some cases, like with Islam, and we were talking about this just a tiny bit, if you want to leave the belief system, you probably have to be killed then too. It's called apostasy. And this happened from the beginning. And it, I thought Dr. Warner's example of what um, Muhammad put in place when he went from Mecca to Medina, that he gave the Arabs in Medina totally free choice whether to convert to Islam or not. And it's just that, you know, unfortunately, they'd all have to be killed if they didn't convert. And so they said, yeah, well, I think, well, we're going to convert. Seems like the best choice. And in any kind of tyranny, this is always gets to that point. Um, when famous communist uh, um, people on the inside spying on the communists in the 60s were on Alex's show and, and uh, on video, and they were saying, yeah, they were planning to... Uh, 
put, I don't know how many tens of millions of Americans into basically concentration camps. And if they wouldn't convert to communism and tyranny and the utopian life that they were all going to, they were going to kill, I, I don't know whether it was 10 or 20 million or whatever, I think it might have been 25 million Americans. And this was in the plans of the serious communists who were operating in the 60s, and I'm sure still are. And they're trying to surface again now, and they are coming out because they know that government will support them in what they're doing now. It's all going toward tyranny, and the people at the top of the power structure really don't care what style it is. It could be religious, it could be secular, it could be communist, it can be, it doesn't matter. As long as all the people are controlled to the point where if they don't go along with it, they can be killed, that's great. And that, that's exactly what uh, tyranny really shoots for. Now, another type of tyranny is not just a religion or a government, it's also can be things like fake science. A lot of people don't think of science as tyranny or as a religion, but in America, it's largely become a religion in the sense that it can't be questioned. And I know about this from the inside in a PhD program that I'm involved in, and that is that um, students are being taught that an acceptable conversation is to quote um, authorized sources in journals or in government agencies, but to bring up your own opinion is... Uh, illegal in that science and you know they may not have a a scripture per se like one book but they've got the journals and to them that's the books and in fact they call the journals the literature like there isn't any other and if you quote the acceptable sources from within the literature then you're having a scientific uh, conversation if you bring up what you think Suddenly, you're a not you're an unsci anti science. I guess this is the word, and this is like some kind of um, uh, blasphemy, and you can be, you know, like like what happened to uh, Dr. Wakefield saying just in a very mild way that they should question whether maybe there's a connection between va certain vaccines, MMR, he was talking about, and the um, microbiome in the gut and something that happens that leads to autism. And boom, he questioned like a primary tenet of the religion of fake modern science. And he got attacked from all sides, actually lost his license to practice medicine. And even now, when he's been proven that he was correct, he didn't get his license back. This is tyranny. And so modern science, even though there's a lot of great people in it, who are still real scientists, the power structure that controls most of it is has become a negative religion. So, um, there are similar pros and cons to dictatorship as there is to a, a hereditary kingship. You know, because if you have a benevolent, wise dictator, it can be great. Because wisdom means that dictator is going to want to protect your freedom. And that's going to be what he or she sees as the primary uh, mandate for being in that position. But what usually happens in history is you get a fantastic benevolent dictator and then their kids that take over are totally insane, you know, criminally insane. And they just start killing everybody. So there are real drawbacks and that's one reason that 
um, in the U.S., they didn't originally set up a kingship or a dictatorship, even though at one point they actually offered it to George Washington. And one reason that he was considered such a great person is that he turned it down voluntarily and said, no, I think I'll go back to my farm. You should have a republic instead and uh, preserve, you know, use government to protect everybody's freedom. So if you want to be a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew or an atheist or whatever you want to be, nobody can ever take away your right to be that. And now it doesn't mean that you can go out and cut the heads off people that won't agree with you. But it means you can practice your belief system to your heart's content and live that way for your whole life as long as you don't attack or take the rights away from anybody else. And that was the whole basis of law in America when it started. This is why people risk not only their own lives, but the lives of their whole family to get to this country. Because with all the problems it had and the, um, you know, total uh, atrocities that were perpetrated on the people who lived in this country before the Europeans came into it, um, all of the bad things that they did don't take away from the fact that the idea that living in a country where you're, you know, supreme over the government, you have freedom as long as you don't hurt other people. This was a very advanced idea, and we're losing it in the world today. So there is, I think, still a, um, a chance to bring it back, but it's on the verge of annihilation and total disappearance. Um, Islam says, as a belief system, that as Bill has clarified, and we want to get much more into it if you'll come back and get more details, so you become educated, and both Muslims and non-Muslims understand the, really in detail the history of where it came from, what it's doing, what the current worldwide invasions are happening now. But Muslim does say in, in its own scriptures that the world has to be conquered and the people who won't convert has to be killed, have to be killed. And this was practiced right at the beginning in Medina. Remember the story about, about the uh, converts in Central Arabia and they all happened to decide to convert. Um, possibly influenced by the fact that they didn't want their heads cut off. And uh, this is why the American leaders that are so corrupt want to bring it in now and want to make believe like they can't understand what's happening and that all these killings are just random, have no reason, and they're just, they mean that there's not enough surveillance on your life. That's why they're happening. But at this point, we have a choice of tyranny over thought, action, belief, and everything on a global scale, which is global suicide, or freedom and bringing back a renaissance uh, where love controls things and government is there to protect our freedom and people respect each other. If you want to pray and believe in the way that a, a Christian does or a Muslim does or a Buddhist does or a Jew does or anybody else, or you want to be an atheist or whatever you want to be, that that is, is respected and you understand that what you give to other people in terms of respect and love and appreciation, whether they're Jewish or Muslim or anything else, doesn't matter. That's what you end up getting for yourself. And this is an idea and a principle that supersedes any religion. It's been happening for a lot longer than any religion has been around that we know of. And uh, it still works. So even the people within any religion, within the Muslim religion, they have that choice too. Do they want to give in 
to tyranny in any form, including religious form, where they're threatened with death if they leave a certain belief system? Or do they want to bring back freedom and love of God like I think Muhammad originally wanted people to have and love of your fellow man and stop deciding who on the outside has to be killed because they don't have the same lifestyle or belief system that we have. There's a major choice and the choice that humans make in this question of freedom versus tyranny in any form is going to determine whether the world goes the rest of the way to committing suicide, which is where it's racing right now. I think it's an important question. You know, do we want condemnation of other people or respect, love, and freedom? And I would suggest that we choose option two. So, anyway, thanks for being with us tonight. I just uh, want to encourage you to come to the other, um, the first of its kind free class that we're doing, one time event. Monday, 6 o'clock Pacific Time, 9 o'clock Eastern, blogtalkradio.com slash lostartsradio, or call in at 657-383-1002. We're going to talk about immunity and how to maximize your resistance to things like chemtrail fallout, uh, nuclear fallout, EMF radiation, other environmental insults that we can't easily totally avoid. So you want to know if if vaccines aren't going to make you immune to things, which they obviously don't. Um, And we've talked about that. Then what does? That's what this class is going to be about. And it's going to tell you, some. it's not a magic pill, it's not a magic herb. Uh, If you're looking for the perfect supplement, there are good ones. But as far as one that's going to not make you have to do the work in your own day-to-day lifestyle, and thoughts and emotions and eating patterns and exercise and all that stuff. Forget it. This is not going to be a lazy way out, but I'm going to tell you the truth. It's a lot of things you're not supposed to know, and I hope you'll be there. And we're going to make, Doug is going to make an archive of it, so if you miss the time, you can hear it later. And um, I just want everybody to have a good life. I don't care what belief system you're in. As long as you follow the belief system, respect the rights of everybody else to follow theirs, And uh, try the harmony idea. It works better than killing each other. It's really a lot better, and you'll like it better, too. So thanks for being here, and we will see you uh, uh, not only for tomorrow night's class, but next Saturday morning, 8 o'clock a.m. Pacific, 11 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time for the Q&A call-in participation class. Have a good night. We'll talk to you soon. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Lost Arts Radio.